Podcast. What's up, humanoids? It is I, Rich Roll, in cahoots with one Mr. Skolnick, content creator, Sir Adam Skolnick, here to corrupt your neurochemistry with ideas big and small. Good to be here with all of you. In addition to breaking down sundry matters of interest and perhaps disinterest, yes, we also do a wee bit of show and tell here, a couple wins of the week, and we round it all out by answering some of the questions dropped on our voicemail, which you can ring up at 424-235-4626. Before we dive in, if you're watching at www.youtube.com, have you heard of this thing, YouTube, Adam? Um, I've heard it's the new thing. It's a thing, right? If you add the backslash rich roll, you will arrive at a channel wherein we upload videos directly from this podcast. Take a second to uh, hit subscribe. That would mean a lot. Uh, click that notification bell. It will alert you when a new podcast goes live. Click the like button. And of course, uh, leave a comment with your yeah. thoughts because that's what we do here. Yes. How are you doing, man? Well, careful, careful how you answer this question. <laughs> a lot of consternation <laughs> in the comments. Well, yes, the comments have said, I always respond the same way with, I'm good, man. You which, do, right? I'm which, good, man, I'm which, good. Which makes people think that I'm either doing well or like- Disingenuous. Or just hanging on, barely hanging right. on, man. Yeah, I don't know that, I'm good, man. It just feels, it's, it's, a, it's a false flag. First of all, it's grammatically incorrect. I mean, if I can just- I'm well, man. I, yeah, I'm very well, man. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound as- Who's the man in this sentence? Well, you're the man, Me? Rich. Okay. <laughs> it's the Rich Roll podcast. Right. So how um, are you actually doing? I'm actually been living with doubt. How have mm. you been? Don't throw it right back at me without <laughs> oh, elaborating on that. <laughs> I've been living with doubt. So I'm in the third draft of this novel that I've been wanting to write for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the entire time of writing it has felt like I'm out of my depth, which is normal, right? Because I'm not, I, I wrote a novel once previously. I attempted, this is the third crack. I attempted to write a novel way, way back in the 90s and convinced myself I sucked and shouldn't be writing a novel. And so I stopped. When in reality, I went back later, several years later and read the pages and it was pretty good. And I should have kept going. Mm -hmm. But by then I wanted to do this other book, finish that. That book is actually how I got uh, Bird to represent right um our agent and and then for one breath for one breath uh bird level shout out and then uh and one and so then one breath ended up happening but the novel itself never found a home it was like one of those almost but not quite and uh so then this other novel uh i've been thinking about since then and just never made the time to do it and so the quarantine happened and i started to do it and now I'm on a third pass. I think it's gonna be like 10 passes before I give it mm -hmm. to anyone to look at. And it just feels like, you know, we've talked about this stuff. It just feels like the imposter syndrome is strong because I'm, I'm wading into territory that hasn't been my territory. And even though I've, you know, comfortable writing books now and I'm comfortable with my work, um, there's things about this that make it a little bit harder for me to, mm -hmm. to really see it. And so I'm just sticking with the process, trusting the process, but I can't say that I'm not living with doubt. Like every day I sit right. down to do it, it's like, I, I'm wondering if it's any good, which is not abnormal. When I write a story for the New York Times, I feel the same way the first draft. But. Yeah, and doubt is a kindred cousin of humility on some level. Like if you weren't experiencing doubt, then I would, I would be, you know, 
prone to believe that that you know you were in your ego. Like how right. how could you not have doubt? Of course you have doubt. It's not a function of doubt. It's allowing the doubt to stop the progress. Right. It's 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 like persevering in the face of doubt, having the courage to continue to show up for the page. Yeah, I think I read um, a Stephen King interview in the New York Times Magazine some time ago, and he said that's part of what we get paid to do is to mm. not give in to that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's that's really helpful. So, and in that same interview, he's like, he's only had one book where he didn't feel that way about the book the entire time, right? Because you I just assume that. he sits down and bangs it out, I and mean, it's like on. a work of he's art, you know, in draft one. Most successful yeah. novelist in the history of, mm -hmm. uh, I think, in the history of Amer American letters, I'm, I think so, in terms of books sold and everything, Probably. and movies made. So, anyway, so there's that. But I, at the same time, I. I do enjoy the process at times, but it's still a process of getting comfortable with the doubt and living in this fantasy land in my head. So um, that's how I've been. Good, man. And at the same time, raising a child, which is also, mm -hmm. <laughs> the doubt is strong. There's that. <laughs> the doubt is strong. Yeah. And in between all of that, trying to find some time to slowly saunter down into the sea, adorn yep. adorn your face mask my full mask submerge yourself yes. and, and 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 do a zone 0 workout <laughs> I, i'm doing either zone 2 <laughs> runs or zone 0 swims that's right. where i live um did find out have you heard of the malibu artist on instagram no so he's been getting some mainstream media play he was on the cover of the la times then he was on the today show he's a drone photographer and he is i've talked to him this week cuz basically he's been posting uh, great drone footage of great white sharks in Malibu, um, mm. everywhere from Sunset Point up. He hasn't specified where these places are, but many, like in one video, there are 22 juvenile white sharks within 50 feet of surfers, swimmers. Wow. And they have no idea that they're there. And so obviously being someone who swims, <laughs> I mean, I yeah. knew Sunset Point was, was a, I've seen a white shark breach there. Um, as I was just driving down the highway and I've seen one breached by Little Doom as well. So I knew that they're there. We've talked about it. I know they're there, but it actually makes me feel a little more comfortable because the sharks are not at all interested in these swimmers whatsoever. Mm. But that's be, one way to look at that's it. That's how I look at it. So, um, and I talked to him, he, he basically, he has deals with certain landowners who allow him to come on and he's able to fly the drone. Um, he is not at Point Doom too much, although he said the biggest shark he's ever seen um, was at Point Doom. <laughs> Right, probably right at that point on route to Little Doom that, that you took me on, <laughs> right, that everybody right. said, stay away from there. Yeah, that's the one, like a 14 footer or something. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. <laughs> um, Great white? Yeah, there are always white sharks that he's finding, that he's mm. at least putting up. I think he has some orca footage he's gonna put up. It's at, at the Malibu artist on Instagram. It's cool footage. I mean, he's really, he does a good job. And so he got on the Today Show because people are freaking out that there's so many sharks yeah. right, off the, right off the shoreline. Yeah, he's and, and because, you know, this is a big year for sharks. So I, I've talked to one of my, uh, a contact, Laura Bodmer, who brought me the story about Travis Rice's uh, snowboarding competition. Mm -hmm. She lives down in, in um, San Diego area, North County. And she said that right now, Solana Beach, it's like, it's like they know about the juvenile white sharks. They are mm. actually seeing them a lot. Not no one's getting hurt. Is it un, is it unusually like an unusually large spawn that yeah, occurred? Just, like the, what's happening? Yeah, Why it's is just it that the populations are healthy. You know, like that the like the marine protected areas are working and the populations are healthy. I think that's part of it. I mean, they're studying it, so I'm not exactly sure if there's anything to why, but it's this is just what's happening. Mm. And so, but so far, like we haven't had an uptick in attack. Like 
it, it isn't leading anywhere bad. So I don't think there's anything to be worried about. For me, it makes me feel actually more comfortable to be honest in some weird counterintuitive way. I don't know if I am processing it in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Smithsonian just did a story, which we can link to how great white sharks and all sharks might use magnetics to navigate. Whoa. There was this cool story about some scientists that put a certain breed of shark, bonnet head sharks, I think, in a tank that they wired with copper wires. And they basically took the magnetic coordinates or whatever it's called. Basically, the earth is is got, you know, iron ore and, mm -hmm. and all sorts of metals and heavy metals. And that's what the core of the those metals they think sharks are using to get from points A to point B. As a navigation as a navigation anchor tool. Or something. And they wow. proved it with this tank by wiring wires and, you know, putting readouts like that that would be the the magnetic draw from their their home versus the magnetic draw from away and wow. the, and they and they managed to swim in the direction of the of the proper that's magnetic draw and yes because great white sharks go out into the middle of the ocean for something to, to a place called the great white cafe or something like that that mm. scientists call it and they have this huge congregation it's like burning man for white sharks in the middle of the ocean and everyone tried to figure out how do they get there know to go there and then know where they're going to go home and they think it's magnetic Reasons. Right, there's some kind of beacon yeah. in the core of the earth Yes, that's luring them to this one place. That's wild. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So maybe there's, right now it's being- Only white sharks? Uh, no, they think all sharks. They think hammerheads, they think uh -huh. they're thinking all sharks, but this particular experiment only proves it with this one small right. subset near Key West. It makes you wonder whether that's applicable for other species as well, like bird migration patterns. Like how, how do these animals that travel vast distances and always find their way home, right. figure that out? Even cats like- Tur I, Sea turtles. A buddy know. of mine took his cat camping in Mammoth. And uh, he's, lives in, he was living in Santa Monica at the time, took his cat to Mammoth the cat ran off in the middle of the night and camping. They had to leave. They couldn't find the cat. They figured the cat was dead, like got eaten by a coyote or something. Two weeks later, the cat walks in his front door. No way. I swear to God. For people that don't know, Mammoth is a couple hundred miles away. Yes. How is that possible? I don't know. It didn't have a tag with an address on yeah, or anything? No, the cat was all fucked up. It was like it'd gone on a weird odyssey. It found its way home yeah, from Pippin, Mammoth. Yeah, Pippin the cat, shout out. Pippin's, I feel like Pippin's that no should be a Pixar movie. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> the Odyssey starring yeah. Pippin the cat. All right, well, we're off to a banger of a start here with the podcast. <laughs> I like it so far. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Mr. Adam Skolnick and myself. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I 
get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources, and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, 
It's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. How are you, Rich? Uh, I'm good. I'm rocking my Taco Vega t-shirt. So yeah, talk to me about awesome. Taco Vega. I've never even heard about it. You got to go to Taco Vega, man. I know. It's the new spot in Los Angeles. Um, Taco Vega is a plant-based Mexican-themed restaurant in Los Angeles. It's right on Fairfax, like a block or two south of Melrose. So kind of right in the heart of this, for people that don't know, that strip of Fairfax is like where Canner's Deli is. And there's all mm -hmm. these like hype stores like Supreme and yep. Rip and Dip. So a lot of kids in that neighborhood. Um, and it's really high-end, but affordable, like really creative Mexican food by my friend, chef owner, Jared Simons, who's a super cool guy. He's also coached by Chris Houth. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he's an Ironman athlete. Um, now he's focusing on ultra running. Really colorful, interesting, sweet guy that I've known over the years. So I've been a frequent uh, visitor of Taco Vega over the last, I think I've been like five times <laughs> in the last month. I love it. Um, Fantastic. So if you're in Los Angeles, drop in, say hello to Jared, tell him that we sent you. Um, he's really a great chef. Interesting story about that, that he reminded me of that I forgot about when I saw him the other day. He actually, Jared actually catered a wedding at our house a couple of years ago. Mm. We sometimes rent our house out for weddings for friends. And this wedding was our friend, Maddie Serpico, shout out to Maddie, who is a former, she's a Canadian former triathlete, vegan. And she got married to Griff Whalen, who's been on the podcast back mm -hmm. in the early days. Uh, a former Stanford NFL, Indianapolis Colts, kind yes. of journeyman wide receiver, who's also vegan, uh, friend of the podcast. They got married at our house and Griff's uh, groomsmen were all like gigantic humans who have played <laughs> in the NFL or at Stanford, <laughs> including Andrew Luck, who was like oh his God. best man. Like, so Andrew, Andrew Luck is Andrew like, Luck? Andrew Luck is like Griff's best friend from college. Okay. And they then they played together in the pros for right. a while. Right. Um, so Andrew Luck was like at my house, you know, playing with my boys and throwing a football around and like, Amazing. you know, and I wasn't there, I was out of town. Shout out so Andrew I didn't, Luck. I did not, <laughs> I was unable <laughs> to seize the opportunity to meet Andrew Luck, although he did visit my home. One day he's going to be telling the time that he threw the football around with the rock stars. I don't think so. I don't think that's ever occurred to him. But he's Not welcome. Yet. He's welcome back at my home anytime. He's also welcome to drop in on the podcast if he ever wants to share his story. Yeah. It would be cool. What a great athlete. Um, switching gears a little bit, I've been told, I've been chastised in the comments section <laughs> to stop being mean to you. 
Really? Yeah. To me. I think because I was beating up on you a little bit about the the face mask, the, the oh, snorkel that was, mask. That was tongue thing. in cheek. That was tongue in cheek. That's what I thought. Yeah. Am I being mean? You could tell me. Right now? It's all in love. Wait, wait yeah. a second. <laughs> yeah. Wait, am I having an intervention? No, (laughs) if I'm being too mean to you, I want you to tell me. You know what? I think everyone needs to stop being offended by almost everything. Thank you. Yeah, so no, I have not at all thought you've been mean (laughs) to me. It's all, we're trying to entertain people. The fact (laughs) is- We're trying, I don't know if we're succeeding. (laughs) We're trying. The fact is I wear a mask when I'm swimming. It is (laughs) off-putting. When I showed up at Catalina to do the swim run, there was one guy wearing a mask. Most people had goggles. Right. I had the mask. And that was your moment to kind of learn a little bit about how the ecosystem works. Uh, apparently that, that didn't, it was not effective though in getting you to change your habit. No, but well. This affinity for, for the, I, I, I do it, think, it defies logic. I, I don't understand your illogical, <laughs> irrational attachment to your that? snorkel mask. <laughs> it's not called a snorkel mask. I don't know what it's called, Listen, I'm not gonna but get it has in, no place. <laughs> it has no place in a swim run lineup. Correct. So the reason is, because the the etymology of the mask is that I was wearing those bigger kind of open water goggles for a while. Mm-hmm. And then we started to do more diving on our swims westward to Point Doom. And then I took a free, I took a, I got into this free diving kind of looking into free diving as a journalist and started doing that story in the book. And pretty quickly I was told that no, you can't free dive with goggles because you can't equalize goggles. You can't fill the space. So if you go too deep, your eyeballs are gonna bulge and it's mm. gonna be, you could break a, a blood vessel and you could have problems. And so you have to have something that you can let a little air out through your nose to equalize that small space. And the lower profile you have, the better you can equalize that. Because if you have too much space, like a scuba diving mask, you can't fill that space. So, you know, with limited, unless you have a big tank on your back. And so they all used for training this particular kind of free dive mask. I get it. That's the reason. Sure. But here's the thing. Are you a free diver or are you a swim run person? Pick your lane. It's a very good question. Or at least at least if you're going out for a swim run workout, wear goggles. (laughs) Well, the real question is, are you a open water swimmer or are you a free diver? And I, I submit, that neither tribe will embrace me. Right, because, you, because you're, you're waffling between these two worlds. You gotta, s- you gotta plant your foot firmly <laughs> in one, at least like, okay, I'm going out for a free dive, then you can wear that and right. say I'm free diving. Right. But if you're just going out for a swim, leave the mask at home. Get, get goggles. Yeah. I'm, I might do it because uh, Julie Shakia, who swims with us, who you've swam with, she's one of the actual swimmers that swims with us. And she actually goes for her swims in the morning, then comes meets us <laughs> for mm. our swims and mm. dives. She does think that it slows you, like she, when she's doing a swim only, she wears goggles and she does think the mask slows slows you down. Right. Do you well, think it I, love, slow, I love that. I love how down? she's your reference point after I've been beating you up over this forever. <laughs> it's like, oh, but she said, okay. Well, do you do think- I have to start a change.org petition to get you <laughs> yes. to abandon this, yes. this this practice? Well, do you think it's do you think it's slowing me down? Of course. Oh, you do. But mainly it's making you look silly when you need not. I like looking silly. Yes. <laughs> I know. Am I being too mean? No, I'm not being too mean. Good. This is All entertaining. Right. Well, we'll we'll check in on this week to week. Can this, I say this is going to be a new segment. Can I can I confront you with <laughs> yeah. something? Congratulations on 600 episodes. Thank you. That's Thank a big you. accomplishment. It's crazy. I don't know how we got here. Uh, you know, it's it's just a one day at a time thing. You know, and then you look up and you're like, whoa, 600 episodes. That's crazy. Unbelievable. I know. 
it seems like a past life when we started and it seems like yesterday. Did you did you do any reflecting? Like is that like when you have these numbers yeah. come around do you like is is it every 100 that you kind of think about wait a second? Like did you think about it at 100 or 200 or I thought 500? about it more at 100 and at 200 than I did with 600. I'm like, "Oh, that's cool. Moving on. What's next?" I always look forward. Right. It's great. I think it's important to pause and celebrate that a little bit, um, but I don't dwell on these things. I remember early on in the show when we would hit certain benchmarks, like when we hit our first 1 million downloads or whatever it was, I would make a big deal out of it. And now it's just like, yeah, it's cool. Let's keep going. Nice. So I don't spend a lot of time reflecting on that because it's not really about that. Right. It's just about um, being in the process of doing it. Just creating content. So that's right. You We're, know you know this now as a content creator. Yes. Sir Adam Skolnick. That's what I've become now. <laughs> you, a content are, creator. you are a content creator. That's good. Because then it's then, a weird thing though, because right. especially as an author and yes. a writer and a journalist, it's like content seems like a step down. It's it's but not we, what, we no are in just, a content creator <laughs> economy now. Yeah. I mean, I think that less unless people are reading books, which is a true thing. But then again, the like, and that was reflected in the fact that like what 92% of all books released in the last year and a half or something sold less than 10,000 copies. And mm -hmm. most of the, and, but, but books actually sold very well. Yeah, but books it was, are selling great. But it's, it's known quantity books. It's like three-year-old, five-year-old books or, you know, big name But I authors. think Amazon and the Kindle hearkened this idea that, it was sounding the death knell for books, and it's been quite the opposite. opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Books and are print, audiobooks are off the chain, and audiobooks are great. I, I do listen to audiobooks, um, and I and I read print books. I I had a Kindle that I used a lot when I was traveling so many months out of the year. Um, it just became easier, but um, it's collected a lot of dust. Yeah, yeah. I like the hard copy, and I like the audiobooks. Same. Um, yeah, but six hundred, it's great. We uh, celebrated that by putting up the episode with Matthew Walker, which people are enjoying. Yeah. Up last night, we're recording this on Monday. Three hours. Three hours on sleep. He's the dude. I gotta, I gotta dive into that. Although yeah. I, I'll feel like shamed because right now sleep is not coming in. Right. In I mean, if you're a new parent yeah. and you're, you've lost your grip on healthy sleep hygiene, it, it, it might just make you feel bad. It'll make you feel alarmed, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. But he's such a beautiful, gentle, wise person. Um, and the way that he communicates, it's, it's, it's a cool thing. He's very talented at explaining the science behind all of this stuff in a manner in which you can not only understand it, but actually become encouraged and enthusiastic about taking sleep a little bit more seriously. So that's really cool. Very cool. That's a conversation I wanted to have for a very long time. So excited that we finally made that happen and just been banking some other cool episodes. I had Mary Kane here last week, who many might uh, recall from a New York Times op doc. She was the, uh, the title of that piece was something like, I was the fastest girl mm -hmm. in America. And then I joined Nike. Mm -hmm. And it's her story of training under Alberto Salazar and everything that happened. And she was a wonderful guest. I'm excited about that. Um, trying to book, Maggie Baird right now, who's Billie Eilish's mom. We've been going back and forth. Hopefully we can lock in on a date. I think she would be epic. Did, did you watch the Billie Eilish documentary? I did not HBO? watch it yet, no. It's fantastic. I mean, I'm, I am actually, I, I 
really enjoy Billie Eilish's point of view and her music. So she is a force. Yeah. It's a really instructive documentary that's incredibly well done that gives you a glimpse into you know the birth of this amazing talent but it's also in tandem a parenting documentary because really? it's it documents the period of time <clears throat> leading up to the release of her first album and her brother Phineas and her literally record the album in his bedroom while they're living in their parents house as homeschooled young people Where? and you see the interaction of the parents and how the parents are trying to um, support, responsibly support their children through this, you know, incredibly unique period of time in which they're introduced to the world in the largest way imaginable, right. and like everything just explodes. And it's a very well done documentary. Was she seventeen? And she's cool. Maggie's really cool. I don't know how old she is now. No, no she's when she broke out. Was yeah, I think she, she was about seventeen. Well, Ocean Eyes came out when she was like thirteen or fourteen oh, or wow. something like that and blew up and that's what led to everything. It's like Lord times album. 10. Yeah, it's amazing. And you know, just a, a truly uniquely gifted person. And Phineas is the engine behind it. Like he writes at a minimum co-writes, but I think he wrote a lot of the songs and he really engineers and produces the music. It's very collaborative, but um, you realize how instrumental he is to the whole thing as well. And their relationship as brother and sister, and also, you know, partners in creativity is super interesting. Older brother? Uh, older brother, yeah. Who also has all kinds of solo work that he does as well. And wow. Maggie, you know, they're big plant-based vegan yes. advocates and activists as yes. well. So I'm excited to sit down with her, hopefully. Um, That's awesome. Soon to check that out. Yeah. Let's check in on the Iron Cowboy. Don't you wish we could just call him? Like at some point we should just next time Let's call him while he's out riding the bike and like really check in on the Iron Cowboy. We could do that. I think maybe we could schedule that, we which should. would be cool. Yeah. Call him and then drop it in as a segment. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he'd be down for that. One of the things that that I did do the other day, and this is a credit, shout out to Brogan Graham, our uh, our our third <laughs> our third co-host here in absentia. He's uh, the Elijah uh, of this podcast. He is. But one of the things, I can't remember whether I talked about this on the podcast before or not, or I might've talked about it on a podcast that hasn't gone up yet. But one of the amazing things about Brogan, that's kind of an outgrowth of his predisposition towards extrovertism is uh, in addition to being like just the most outgoing person you're ever gonna meet, he has a practice of connecting with friends by sending texting them what he calls short films. <laughs> so video messages essentially, but he would berate me for that title. They're rich, they're short films. They are short films. And he will every single day, send me a little short film of him checking in. And they're usually well staged with yes. props and all kinds of stuff that have a story arc to them and kind of <laughs> end with you know something prolific or, or poignant. Um, and. I've adopted this practice you and have. started doing it. Like okay. I started sending short films to other friends of mine. And it's kind of a cool way in an age in which we don't write letters anymore, which is another thing Brogan does. He sends letters out on an old typewriter, oh, that's which cool. is another cool practice. That is cool. But to connect with friends, like, you know, it's that thing where you haven't talked to somebody for a long time. You're like, oh, do I have 40 minutes to call them? And then you don't. And then the phone gets really heavy. This way you can send a short film check in with them. There's no expectation that they need to get back to you, but 
you're demonstrating that you're thinking about them or you know you have something mm. you want to impart and it's kind of a cool unique thing that I think more people should do so I started doing it more you and I are on a group text with Brogan so you've been doing that with him so I sent one of these to the Aaron Cowboy last week mm. um, just wishing him well uh, which you know he got back to me it's cool so I think um, I think he would be down for a call. I think that would be great. He's got to be on his bike right now, right? Still probably. On his bike? Or are we let's it up? see. It's it's almost one o'clock here in L.A. He's probably finishing his ride today. Is in about thirty minutes. Day seventy one today. Mm. We're recording on Monday. This goes up on Thursday, so we're on day seventy one. He seems to be in very good spirits. He's doing great. It's like I his feel like he rounded a corner and too. he's smiling and laughing and joking with people and in a really good spot. It's unbelievable. I wonder what's happening to him. Unbelievable. <laughs> 70 Ironmans into this thing. And he's 70 just rocking. 70 in a row, yeah. one after another. No break. No break, no day off. No break for Mother's Day. No. There was one day last, I think it was last week, his daughters were going to prom. Mm. So he stopped for a photo and like wished them well, like saw his daughters off to prom in, during T2 in between his, his bike and his marathon. That's hilarious. And it seems like more and more people are congregating to join him. And I love in the video that I sent him, I said, there's two things that I really love and appreciate about how he's conducting himself through this whole thing. The first is just the participatory nature of this. And we've talked about this before. It's a very inclusive thing. Like he's really engendered a lot of community around what he's doing. All comers are welcome. He makes them feel welcome. Um, It's not like, hey, I'm over here, stay away from me. It's like, we're all in this together kind Mm. of vibe. Mm. And then at the conclusion of every marathon, every evening, everybody kind of surrounds him in a circle and he gives a little impromptu speech and he recognizes certain people who came out to join him. I think his son did the marathon, uh, Marathon 70 with him, he recognized him or people that fly in from out of town. My friend, Chris Gillibo Mm -hmm. flew in from Portland to do a day with him. Like people are coming from all over to get a taste of this. And the fact that he, in his exhaustion still you know, takes that moment to recognize them, I think is really special. And it speaks to, you know, fundamentally his good character. Unbelievable. Do you yeah. think, do you feel like, um, cause he's doing like 15 to 16 minute mile marathons. Like, do you feel like he's doing like walk five minutes, run five minutes? I think or? he's pretty much walking the whole Just way. And fast. I, I believe he said, you know, look, I wish I, I could run. I, I don't think that, I think that his ankles or whatever's going on with his hips or whatever, he's unable to run. So he's literally, just walking so that, you know, people should know it's like, yeah, ideally he would be running all these marathons, Um, but he's like, you know, I think he's a very good walker in that when you develop that skill, you can walk quite a bit faster than people realize yeah, and probably faster than an easy jog and certainly faster than the Ironman shuffle. But uh, but I think it's pretty much a brisk walk at this point every day, which takes him like over six hours, I think. It's crazy. I mean, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, speaking of his, just his his ethics and his charisma, you wanted to talk about this, the fact that the Ironman was uh, triathlon governing body yeah. uh, was coming at him and, and how he responds to that. I mean, it's, it's a, he's to be in the midst of this and have to deal with that and then to deal with it in a way that still is, it, he could have been so much more bent out of shape mm-hmm. and he he really wasn't. He was just like- 
He put his foot down though. He did. He made no bones about where he stands on this whole thing. So we should explain. Yeah. Um, he got into a beef with Iron Man. Iron Man sent him essentially a cease and desist letter mm. uh, indicating that because there's a lot of press now that's occurring around what he's doing, CNN and all these newspapers are covering what he's doing. And apparently in some of these pieces, they're saying that he's doing a hundred, a hundred Iron Man's. Right. Iron Man is a trademarked, is a trademark of the WTC. They're very protective and they police that trademark pretty rigorously. So he gets this email, basically says, look, all this press is covering you. They're calling what you're doing a hundred Iron Man's, just so we're clear. Uh, Iron Man is a protected mark that we own and control. Please refrain from using that and please let them know that they can't use right, that. Right, right. And he's like, he he just his his and he and he screen grabbed it. He shared it on Instagram and he his caption was essentially like, I don't have time for this. Like, what are right. you talking? Like, you got a problem with these the press outlets, go contact them. I'm right. out here breaking world records every single day. And by the way, like I'm doing more for your brand than anybody yeah. raising awareness around this thing. Yeah. And you're coming at me, like I'm done with you. Yeah. And by the way, you owe me like $4,000 for, <laughs> for you know unrefunded uh, race entry fees yes, and things yes. like that. Like he basically just, he just basically, you know, slapped them across the face. He did, but in a way that was like, kind of, I think, positive for what he's doing. He's like, sure. you know, he's like, he doesn't, he's not gonna take shit, but he's, he could have, he, he wasn't, it wasn't whiny. It was just straight up, mm -hmm. you know, like sometimes that could be, you could come off worse. And I thought that he did, yeah. I thought his, his statement was, was fantastic. Yeah, And I think in a broader way, it speaks to the ills of the corporatization of multi-sport, mm. um, you know, Come on, Iron Man! Like a bunch of like a bunch of lawyers had to like write this letter. Right. It's it's causing a backlash in reverse of what they're trying to do, which yeah. is to engender support for their brand, right? And that was James's point: is that look, I'm you know you you say you're all about inclusion and you're about inspiration, and I'm out here trying to do both of those things, and you're telling me to stop or right. to do it differently. Like how dare you? Like I'm done with you. Right. It's um you have to wonder who is like <laughs> in charge of writing that letter. Like who is Well, like there was some the C suite person is. who just called up the general counsel's department at the yeah. organization and said, Look, you know, we gotta we gotta clear this up. You know, and then that's how it lands. Come on. It landed poorly. You know? Very tone deaf from the Iron Man, uh, the WTC. Right. Yeah. And imagine if you flip the switch or flip the lens on it and Iron Man came to his support and said, we love what you're doing. It's fantastic. Keep going. Do you need any support? How can we help you? Exactly. And the goodwill that that would engender for the larger organization as a whole. And if you have an issue with the fact like that the, what he's doing isn't exactly how it would go in an Iron Man race, you can use that platform to say so. Sure. Yeah. But to say, hey, we don't like what you're doing stop talking about it in the way that you're talking about it. And, and, call, and contact, like the, and contact weird, the media like company. Behind that is this <laughs> idea that, oh no, if people start doing their own adventures, they're not gonna sign up for our races. All those races sell out anyway. Right, they can't, they can't. So what are you really talking about? I mean, right now, the fact is that like, we're just coming out of it. 
it was hard to stage these races. You couldn't stage the races and people had to do virtual races. But as someone who has done a few of these virtual events. And they canceled all their races and didn't refund anybody their entry fees. So he right? goes, yeah, so that's what he's talking about. Right. That's a, you know, a big thing that a lot of people are grousing about. And the issue of corporatization of, of multi-sport was also you know, switching gears a little bit in the news this past week because Ironman partnered or took a minority stake in, in UTMB, the ultra mm-hmm. trail du Mont Blanc, which is really the sports trail running most prestigious week long series of ultra marathons. And this has ruffled quite a few feathers. Um, the UTMB is like this epic race and it's a big race. A lot of, you know, a lot of trail runs, there's not very many people right. in them. They're very kind of grassroots, but UTMB is, uh, you know, a, a, a huge, event. So a lot of people are kind of decrying the commodification of the trail ultra world. They're gonna create this UTMB world series. You're gonna have to qualify. The big fear of course, being that all these big corporate sponsors are gonna roll in, entry fees are gonna go through the roof. Not everybody though, there's there's certain, you know, well-known athletes who are supportive of this move. But I think um, there's a guy called John Kelly who's done a lot of Ironmans and has mm. also done a lot of trail races. And he said, monopolization of events through exclusive qualifiers to the premier, quote unquote, premier race leading to sky high entry fees and closure of independent races, complete disregard for host sites, athlete experience and safety or anything in the way of money. You know, there's different cultures and goals. So it really is basically what he's saying is there's a clash of cultures here. And I think that's that's right. You know, when you think of Iron Man, you think right. of people who show up, they look the part, they're wearing a certain kind of costume, you know, they got the right tattoo. Yeah. It's a culture that's very different and at odds with the trail running culture, which is much more of a of a down to earth. It's a dirt bag, much more dirt bag. Yeah. I mean, yeah, those, yeah. those are the roots of it. Yeah. At the same time. I suppose partnerships like this are inevitable as the exposure and the growth of sports like trail running continue to grow. Right. Like this is going to happen, right? So how do if it is going to happen, how do you do it correctly and properly and preserve what's great about the trail running culture and not let it become corrupted by the influx of cash? I don't know. We'll find out, I we'll guess, find right? Out. I mean, that's one of the draws of Utsala, right? Is that those guys are so not corporate. Right, There's so imagine, you know, so imagine the response of Iron, if suddenly you woke up and you got an email from Otillo saying they partnered with Iron Man. Like it wouldn't make sense to me. No, because they seem like completely different. That's what you're right. saying, the mountain block thing is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. no, it wouldn't make sense. I don't foresee that happening, but. I don't either, but I think a lot of people would have said there's no way that UTMB would right. partner with Iron Man. Well, they must, what's in it for them? Do you think just some stake money? I think stability, cash, yeah. um, you know, the ability to plug into a really well-funded machine that knows how to like blow these things up and create structure yeah. for them. And a big brand, right? The big brand is, it's right. easy to well, raise money off a brand, right? Sure, but from what I understand, UTM, there will be no Ironman branding at UTMB. Okay. So it appears that UTMB wants to leverage like the the back office capabilities of an organization like Ironman to scale what they've created into this series, which allows them to expand the scope. And the good news is, you know, the silver lining in it is that with that, perhaps you expand um, the exposure of the sport and bring more people into it because mm-hmm. it's all about growth, right? So right. 
Iron Man will allow them to grow in a way that they couldn't otherwise. But if you're a traditionalist, you're thinking we don't need to grow. We've grown right. enough. Like let's keep it. Let's keep what's great about it and not allow it to be corrupted. It's the old story, man. We all liked we all liked the bands before they started playing the arenas, back in the club days. Yeah, you know I'm what I mean. Still like an, an REM murmur guy. <laughs> back to murmur, dude. In the I saw, Athens, Georgia days, bro. I saw fish in a in a gymnasium <laughs> in, in Vermont. Right. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, bro. But you should have seen that show in the gymnasium. It wasn't as good, but I like to think it was better. Of course. <laughs> all right, let's. Uh, Take a quick break first uh, to kind of round out the, the Iron Cowboy thing. Please make a point of following him at Iron Cowboy James on Instagram, Instagram stories specifically uh, to kind of follow the moment to moment unfolding of his epic journey. And we'll be right back. Well, can I, before we go more. away, what? I have an idea for to, to brand, since we're talking about branding, mm. to brand. Should we partner with Iron Man? I've never done a WTC race <laughs> ever. You, I don't plan to either. We, we might get calls from Iron Man just for saying Iron Man. <laughs> I'm afraid Mount Blanc, <laughs> yeah. you won't be able to say Mount Blanc. Does France know that Mount Blanc is owned by Iron Man now? <laughs> I don't know, alert alert the lawyers, <laughs> right? But An interesting side note with that, yeah. you know how people do Iron Man's and then they get the Iron Man tattoo, like the M yes. dot tattoo? Yes. That's technically a copyright violation. On their skin. Exactly. It's like a double violation. Right, but of course it's the ultimate branding for them as well. So can you pick and choose which parts or which occasions of that that um, intellectual property transgression you're gonna you're going to police. I think you should allow it. If I was Iron Man lawyers, I would allow the tattooing, but I would also demand to be able to br literally brand them with an iron eye <laughs> yeah, as it. they cross the finish That's line. That's a solution. <laughs> Wait, so the Brogan Graham Film Festival. I'm gonna call it the hashtag FF or the three Fs: Friendship Film Festival. Not the Fire Film Festival with a Y. <laughs> no, not Fire. The Friendship, Friendship Film, film Festival. Mm. Every it's time a lot you of do pressure. it, every time you send a film, a three F film brought to you by three Fs. Right. Okay. Tri trip trips F. I don't follow. I don't know. I'm just trying to brand it. Yeah. Just trying to brand things. But the whole thing is, it's not. It's, it's not. It's not for social media. It's just. It's an intimate exchange between two people. That's true. We shouldn't try to brand these things. Yeah. No. Who would brand? See, intimacy? this is a this is a microcosm example of the Iron Man, UTMB. I'm thing. part of the problem. I want to. I want to. <laughs> I'm coming from the dirtbag perspective. Yeah. Let's protect the purity of this art form. Nothing is pure, Rich. All right. We'll be back in a few. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Before we get into the main thing I wanna talk about today, that previous segment that we just recorded, either that's art or we just lost the whole audience. <laughs> yes. Where do you fall on that? Well, if it is art, we definitely lost the whole audience. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Either way, it's not it's just good. Just two guys talking to each other. Yeah, for the two people that have stuck with us. Yes. Now, welcome. Yes, thank you for taking <laughs> taking a risk, taking a chance on us. Yes. Um, so for the big story uh, this week, rather than dive into the news headlines, I wanted to seize an opportunity to do something a little bit different, um, which is riff off a tweet that I saw the other day from my friend, Steve Magnus. Steve's a, a former friend of the pod, been on the podcast twice, co-author with Brad Stolberg of a couple of great books. He's an elite track and field coach, former Oregon project coach, mm. a guy who's been outspoken against doping and Alberto Salazar specifically. Um, and he's just a source of wisdom on Twitter. And he tweeted something that, that stuck with me because it resonates with something I think about a lot. And his tweet goes like this. There's a reason athletes have off seasons. After intense stress, you need time to mentally and physically recover. Periodize your life. Know when it's time to grind and when you need to back off and recover. I think it's a simple statement, but I think it's also profound, this idea of periodizing, not just your training, but also your life. Like everything has a season. Yeah. And when I look at you, Adam, I see somebody who's trained for hard things, who's done hard things, but I'm not sure you've ever engaged in a proper training protocol that involved periodization. We've maybe periodization has come up mm -hmm. from time to time in former roll-ons, but are you familiar with the concept of periodized training? No. You're not at all. <laughs> no. No? <laughs> no. Uh, but I haven't I haven't you say I've done hard things. I mean, I haven't trained for like ultra distance events or even, you know, like, I mean. But periodization is a tried and true uh, approach to training for any, it doesn't have to be an ultra distance thing. If you're doing Olympic triathlons, if you're training right. for a marathon, if you're training for any kind of physical feat or endurance challenge, periodization is a way of structuring how you, you create your schedule going forward. So okay. let's say, you have a year to prepare for a race, yep. a really big race, it's on the calendar. You look at the end date and you're like, okay, that day's coming. Here I am 365 days beforehand. How am I going to best prepare so that on that race day, I'm at my absolute peak to perform to my capabilities. And the way you do that is you break down your training into certain blocks. You have these this build phase and then you back off and then you go a little bit harder and then you back off again and then you increase again. And then maybe you take two weeks of really easy training. Like you build in periods of time mindfully that allow your body to recover. And this can happen quarterly, it can happen monthly, it happens weekly, it happens daily. So there's the macro and the micro that gets built into all of this hmm. so that you are breaking your body down, but not blind to the fact that you've got to allow your body to build itself back up so that you can then approach your training as a stronger, fitter athlete to, to take it you know, to the next level, to break through certain plateaus. And knowing when to back off and how to back off and for how long to back off is both an art and a science. Yeah. And I've had my best years as an athlete, my best performances, when I've really taken periodization to heart and um, followed the direction of my coach, Chris South. When I was a swimmer, 
there was no periodization. We just went in and we hammered every right. single day. And then we hung, you know, all our hopes on a two-week taper at the end of the season and just prayed that it all worked out. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. But you were, that we was since, early, earlier that was early, This is like 80s. Right, like, you know? that, that's what they did then. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was all about But yardage. now it's like understanding how, how hard you can push before you tip into overtraining and knowing when to back off the gas and allowing your body to recover, knowing how long you need for your body to bounce back and what kind of training you're doing during those, those sort of easier intervals of time um, really becomes this incredible lever for growth and, and performance breakthroughs. So how would you like, if, if you're training for Catalina, I'm not, I'm most likely not doing the full distance Catalina because I just don't, I can't commit to the time it's gonna take to train for it with a young, young one, but I'm gonna do the sprint, which is 15K. Mm-hmm. So how would you periodize that? Like when would you start and how would you periodize well, that? Well, f- first I would break up the period of time into like three phases. The first phase would be a endurance building, like base building period where you're just working on your foundation and you're getting a lot of zone two work in and getting acclimated to spending a lot of time swimming and running mm-hmm. so that your body, um, kind of knows what that feels like. You're giving your tendons and your ligaments the opportunity to adapt, not just your lungs and your heart, but all of your muscles in your body to figure out like how to sustain itself over long periods of time. So that phase would be a slow progressive build of going longer and longer and longer, mostly in the zone two phase. But within that block, you're gonna do a little, maybe like a two week build, and then you're gonna have four days that are gonna be pretty easy or maybe a week that's pretty easy where you're still training, but the gas isn't all the way pressed down, right? You're, you're, you're backing off so that during that, tra- that, that week of training, your body's getting, you're allowing your body to recover and get stronger. And then that would be followed by an, another sub block within the base building block of going a little bit longer than you did in that initial block mm. to push through to the next barrier. And you just repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and pay attention to how your body is recovering during those off periods so that you can better calibrate what those rest weeks look like. Hmm. And then within each week you have a rest day, right? So, it, and then within each day, you know, you have, when are you training and what are you doing in between, in between your training sessions? So periodization works at every level from yearly to monthly to, you know, weekly to daily. Um, then your second phase would be more of a strength and speed building phase where you're gonna be doing more tempo work interspersed uh-huh. with continuing to increase your volume over zone two, but you're gonna choose moments where you're gonna do, you're, you're gonna have really hard kind of um, zone three, zone four, zone five efforts in there to get used to the idea that you experience when you're doing a swim run, which is that you're always changing gears. You're, right. you're ramping up your heart rate, it's coming back down, it's going back, you're like, it's not like an Ironman or a marathon where you get into, you, you rev up to a certain speed and you hold it as long as you can. A swim right. run, you're constantly switching back and forth. So it would be more focused on getting your heart and your lungs and your muscles acclimated to heart rate spikes and getting fit enough so that your heart rate comes back down pretty expeditiously. Right. The third phase would, would be race specific. Then you're gonna start sort of training in the spirit of what the race is and trying to mimic what that experience is like. And, and you'll have- six week blocks usually? Well, it depends on how much time you have. Okay. You know what I mean? Like you can, I mean, we could spend four hours trying to figure out exactly 
what to do. And this is an ideal situation. This isn't necessarily, you know, the the protocol for the time crunched dad of a baby who only right. has, you know, who's not going to be able to train every single day. But basically, I just wanted to lay that out in the most general terms to help people understand what periodization looks like. Can we build in a period for me to hunch over my computer and type with two fingers? <laughs> yes, okay. we can. There's room for in. all of it. That's what I do between training sessions. But I think the broader point here and and why I wanted to talk about this, you know, given that I've learned a lot about the wisdom of periodizing endurance training is that it's so applicable in every other area yes. of life. And it goes back to ancient wisdom. It's like, eat with the seasons, mm-hmm. live by the seasons. Why do I feel so sluggish and tired in, in the colder, darker months? Because you're hardwired for that, right? Like well, it so back rather to like than Matt Walker, like the, how we are wired for when the sun went down, we all slept for exactly. like that whole period of time or right. like close to it. And 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 we've come so far from that. And so that, that there's so many kind of overlays. Right? right. And now we're in this hustle porn culture yeah. where if you're like not if your porn. output isn't like insane and you're not grinding 24-7 and staying up all night and pulling all nighters and on your hustle there's something wrong with you. Right. Such that when you have a fallow moment and you wanna rest or you're like, I just don't have it today, you feel guilty or you beat yourself up or you have this sense that you're falling behind. And I think that sensibility, that mentality, that mindset is anathema to long-term success. I think we need to understand that we're all built for periods of, of great productivity but if you wanna sustain that over the long period of time, you have to periodize that. You have to Mm. periodize your career. You have to periodize your creative output. You have to periodize essentially everything that you do. And the more mindful you can be to make sure that you're you're incorporating fallow periods to coin Bonnie Choi's article, which we're gonna talk about. Um, I think, uh, you know, and it's, for a lot of type A personalities, it doesn't feel, it feels indulgent, right? right? Or selfish or unproductive to do that. There's a guilt and there's a shame that gets built into that. That's driven by cultural pressures that we need to overcome. And as a 54 year old, who's you know been doing stuff for a long time, I can tell you, you can't just be cranking all the time. Now right. you as a content creator, <laughs> you see burnout amidst content well, creators because you know, they can't sustain the level of output that they're doing and they either mm. flame out or disappear or they have to reinvent themselves and create a way of contributing their creativity in a manner that's more sustainable with lifestyle. It's interesting because like two things came to my mind when you told me you wanted to talk about this. The first is when I was when Lonely Planet travel guides were my primary, you know, job when I was mm-hmm. doing that, and it was a period of from 2007 to what 2013 where I was gone eight, nine months a year and I would do like three of these guides and that that entailed long periods of travel, um, usually in remote areas, um, not always, but usually, um, and then come back either home or I'd rent a place in the country and long periods of just, you know, 12 hour days, Chilling. 10 hour days in the computer and then uh, and living mm. in situ so I could make calls if I didn't have all my research done, I, I knew where I was. Um, and so that has a built-in kind of, not fallow, cause you're still hustling, but it, it, there is periodization in the research gathering and the writing. Mm-hmm. And it was, na- it felt natural. And there is that still, anytime you're on a story that like, 
when, when writing, when you're trying to come up with something written at the end of it versus what you're doing with the mics, it's kind of your, it's all one thing, but you're, you're reporting, but that's different than the writing where mm -hmm. you can analyze and be kind of create the distance in between and organize it. And you know what you want to say versus the, the absorption, which, and the second thing that came to mind was Bonnie's story, which she published in 2019, which I, I sent to you this morning mm -hmm. and, and, um, because that's what she's talking about is, is creating that space for absorption as a, as a creative person. Um, so that's, that's, what, that's immediately where my mind went. It didn't go to athletics at all for me yeah. because like athletics are just kind of like something for, just to, to, to keep my mind right more than anything, my body right. But like, I don't think of it in terms of any sort of outcomes or optimization. And, but I immediately went to that point and like, wow, I don't really have what I used to have. There's no like, there's no longer that period of like three months where I'm just traveling mm -hmm. and absorbing and three months of writing. Like I don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. Two months of writing is what it used to be or a month. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. And I do, I did like that rhythm. There's something real natural about it. Yeah, it's, it comes in phases, Yeah. right? Just like if you're making a movie, you write the script by yourself or with a friend or whatever yeah. partner, then you shoot the movie then you edit the movie, then you market the movie. Yeah. All of those are part and parcel of being a filmmaker, but they're all very different disciplines that mm. I suspect for, and, and you know, any, every filmmaker is gonna excel in different areas of those and maybe doesn't like certain aspects of it, but the switching gears aspect of it probably keeps them fresh, yeah. right? In the same way that if you're a triathlete, you get to switch up the different disciplines of sport that you're pursuing. For me, people are always like, which one do you like the best? And it's like, I like that I get to change all the time and it's mm. not the same thing every single day. But I think on top of that is this idea of, you know, to kind of hearken to this idea of, of, of absorbing, like that's where it gets tricky for people. Like, look, a lot of people, they can't, they don't have the luxury of like, I'm gonna kick back and absorb my life. But no. if you're trying to express something, if you're a creative person, you have to live your life in order to have something to say. Yes. You can't just be writing all the time because you're gonna run out of things to write right. about if you're not right. living, right? Right. right? So you have to live your life. You have to have moments of absorption, no matter what your career path or how busy your circumstances may be, what that looks like to you is gonna depend on your circumstances and your you know, particularities of your life, of course. But I think just being mindful of that and trying to find ways even within your day in a given day to ruminate or do nothing and not feel guilty about it, right? right. There's that thing like, Stand-up comics are people that just don't like to, you know, like the like people that don't like to wake up in the morning, yeah. you know, and like are lazy, like become stand-up comics. And it's like, what does that guy do? All he just does nothing. He wakes up at noon and he like goes and gets a sandwich and like wanders around and then does it's like what is that person's, you know, right. What's driving that person? But they're overlooking the fact that the brain is working all the time. So there's observation, there's yeah synthesis, there's absorption, all of those things are occurring and we shouldn't be so quick to judge how a certain human operates. Also, it's funny, we say he's doing nothing or she's doing nothing, but they're being, you know, it's almost like- Right, but you know, we're not allowed to just be. No. That's the, that's the broader point, right. right? I mean, there is a certain element of like, 
I think you get to a certain point where you have to be able to afford to, to be, but mm. everyone has that. Like, I don't care what your job is, there's going to be pressures to, and we often fill that space of doing nothing with absorbing other people's content. Like most people I think absorb it through television or Netflix or YouTube or whatever, um, you know, myself included. But uh, you know, what Bonnie is talking about here is kind of an active not doing. It's, 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 it's going to the park and people watching, it's reading. It's, she's not really advocating vegging on the couch and watching television. No, no, no. So what she, it, what she's a, saying she's is- She's separating out the fallow, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and acknowledging that in this age of distraction yeah. that it's transgressive to do this, right? Yeah, There's yeah. one quote that, that I noted that I wanted to read from the piece, which is called, you're doing something important when you aren't doing anything. We'll link it up in the show notes, but she says, Protecting and practicing fallow time is an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. It can make us feel out of step with what the prevailing culture tells us, the 24 seven hamster wheel of work, the constant accessibility and the impatient press of social media, all hasten the anxiety over someone else's judgment. If you aren't visibly producing, you aren't worthy. In this context, taking time to lie dormant feels greedy, even wasteful. And of course there are often financial concerns. So yeah, this this notion that it's transgressive, that it is an act of resistance, yeah. that you have to push back against culture and your addictive instinct to grab the phone and ameliorate your you know, your your boredom yeah. by filling it with scrolling or whatever it is that you look at yeah. on your phone. It's very difficult. It's never been more difficult to carve out that time, that fallow time, yeah. that time for rumination and quietude. And feeling wasteful. I mean, yeah, that's exactly it. Like, am I wasting time? by doing X or Y or whatever. And, and you know, that's one thing that I think adventuring, which I, is what I consider swimming and running these days for me, it's like, it's like these mini adventures that allows me to clear my head in a way that's a fallow time mm -hmm. within a day for me. But it's not though, because I'm still trying to get something done. So it really doesn't really qualify as fallow yeah. time. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, it's, it's hard. pushing my son and his like new tricycle is kind of. But I also think time. it's the mindset that you bring to whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. Right. Like you could go out and and go for a walk with your son mm. and and bring your phone and stare at your phone the whole time, right. or you leave your phone at home and right. you comport yourself like Brogan and go up and talk to people and live in your brain and you know, kind of allow yourself to mentally meander. Yeah, which, you know, we've been watching Mad Men because April had never mm. seen Mad Men. So we've, I'm rewatching the whole series. We're in season six now. And that's something for all of Don Draper's many faults, although he is gifted too. Um, <laughs> one thing that we love about Don is his willingness to nap at any time of day or night. He is a world-class <laughs> napper. But when you're, when, you're, when you're boozing that hard, I don't see any other way around it. Like when you're hammering yeah. like four Manhattans at lunch, yes. a nap is in your immediate future. And nobody loves a matinee more than Don Draper on a work day. That's true. And so those are, but that's exactly what he's doing though. He calls that absorption. He would be fully in on this. Right. Like the absorption state, he, he didn't care when people worked. Well, he doesn't, he never, you never see him in front of a whiteboard no. mapping out his strategy for, you know, brand X. No. He kind of comes up with his ideas sua sponte, like mm. very extemporaneously in the meeting. Yeah. I am more like the Peggy Olson, sweating it out, <laughs> like like trying to hammer at it, yeah. figure it out. I'm not the Don Draper, nap, <laughs> no. matinee, genius. That's funny. <laughs> 
Does it hold up? I bet it holds it's up pretty good, good, right? There was one episode where they had to do a trigger warning though, because- Really? It, yeah. Even though it takes place in the Which 60s. One? It was when Roger uh, sang in blackface. Oh. And they did a trigger warning. Yeah, Roger. Roger, not not that politically correct, that guy. Politically incorrect. Well, you know, they were early in like the first season, it was 1960, and they were all on Nixon's side. Mm -hmm. Like the I whole, remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Because they were yeah. they were considering getting into they repped, campaign marketing. They repped Nixon, but right. Nixon wouldn't like the campaign wasn't listening to him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think we got off track here. Yes. Did we cover the periodization well, of your life? Tell me about your life, like periodizing. Like where are you in your periodization journey? And when's the what's the I'm most not great successful? At it. What's the most successful you've ever been at it? Well, one thing I've done is to build in this month every year where I take off, which is new. I've done it twice, but I intend to do that every year. Mm. I think travel for me is a, is, a, is a big aspect of that in terms of rejuvenating me and, and exposing me to new people and new places. I find that to be very nourishing. Mm -hmm. um, like, your, like, your, like your big island. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and when, and, I, went to, and, when and I went to Australia, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but even you know, when pre-COVID, there'd be speaking things and I would get to go to all these cool places. And yeah. for me, that's that like really reboots my system. Same. So COVID's been challenging just to be at home and sit with my thoughts. No and I struggle with adopting the appropriate healthy mindset around leveraging that appropriately. But I think at the same time, we have to be gentle on ourselves, mm. like, you know, not to, not to kind of beat a dead horse, but it's been a really hard year for everybody. Yes. And, I think a fallow year for everybody in a way that we wouldn't have chosen or didn't expect. That's true. Um, so being gentle on ourselves, I think is part of that idea of, of periodizing your life. Like this was a fallow year rather than live in regret or frustration or resentment over it while we're still kind of in it, like how can we develop a better, healthier mindset around this experience, how can we learn from it? How can we use it for that kind of internal journey that will help improve our lives as we move forward in other areas? Mm. I, I miss the travel a lot, you know, mm -hmm. especially lately. And we were even thinking about jumping on a plane here in May and trying to get like to, to Hawaii for 10 days or something, but um, are, are opting against it just to let this second wave, wherever it is, kind of chill out and then uh, our third wave and then see where we're at. Um, but we're definitely feeling that it's, that, I mean, travel is how we all reset in mm -hmm. certain ways, adventure, that kind of thing. You kind of pull yourself out of who you are and you can be uh, in a totally different state of being and then come back. And it's the best way to go fallow, I think. It's yeah. the best way to observe, but you can do that in our daily life here and we should, we should all do more of that. I think from the athletics perspective, one thing that I think about when you're talking about off seasons is the great example of that is the current uh, NBA season in that they had the shortest off season in the history of the league because they had to, if you remember, they had to move everything mm -hmm. because and put it in a bubble in Orlando, uh, you know, to do the playoffs and everything else after they'd shut down in March. I think they moved, I forget when it was, it was in the late summer. I don't think it wrapped until like September or October, I can't remember offhand, I think October. And then the, the thought was usually the season starts again, like the end of October. And so the thought was they were probably not gonna start again until after the new year. 
but they actually launched with something like less than three months off. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I remember LeBron James being very outspoken about it because he spends a million dollars a year on his body. He's right. like, so he knows all about this. Like he periodizes yeah, to get peak for the playoffs. And, um, and, and this NBA season has been one of the worst in terms of major uh, athletes coming down with injuries. Yeah, LeBron injuries. Included. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so it's interesting. Um, that uh, you know, that's what I think about. Like it, it does, it does make a big difference when you're when you're in the elite level too, especially, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. But I think in terms of the everyday individual, thinking about the pandemic and thinking about how to move forward, so much of it is about acceptance too. Mm. It's like when an athlete's injured and they're frustrated that they can't train or they're falling behind or what is this going to mean in terms of uh, the big race that I'm training for there's nothing you can do about it, right? So in this moment of repose, what can be learned? How can you mine it to be better in other areas of your life and use the various periods for what they're intended to sort of avail you of? Hmm. Love it. I don't know. That's some good, that's some, know, that's some that good sense? classic ritual brain food. All right, let's, let's shift gears. <laughs> Spoken like a true hype man. <laughs> Your job's secure. Are you uncomfortable Brogan, with my Brogan, hype? Brogan is not moving to Los Angeles. You're okay. My Your greatest, job is very secure. My greatest ability is availability. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> not to be underestimated. Not to be you know? underestimated. You have yet to say, I can't, there was one time where you couldn't because you were having a baby, right? Am I overly available? No, you're appropriately available. I'm appropriately available. Yeah. You don't want to be inappropriately available. No. <laughs> No, because then you're reeking of need. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't you have anything else going on? <laughs> All right, let's move on. Yes. Um, we're going to do a little, it's not really show and tell. I'm just going to note a few things. I, I did want to say it's tell. Um, yeah, it's tell, no show. To everybody who left a comment um, on the YouTube channel and subscribed in response to the 10,000 distance kit giveaway, thank you. We reached out to five people, um, got addresses and we'll be shipping those out shortly. So uh, you have that to look forward to. We'll be doing more giveaways. Uh, again, I'm developing some new stuff with 10,000 that I'm pretty excited about. So I'll be sharing more about that as the weeks and months unfold. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to friends of the pod, Jesse Thomas, Lauren Fleshman, uh, Gabby Reese and Laird Hamilton. They formed this Super Twins Activate Alliance between Picky Bars and Laird Superfood, which mm. I think is is superfood cool. Um, <laughs> it's the first time two husband and wife teams, all four of them have been on the podcast and went off and merged their companies. So I feel emotionally attached to this in an illogical way. So the companies are merged. I don't know if it's a part or if it was an, I don't know if Laird Superfood acquired Picky Bars. Mm. It's some kind of alliance, some 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 form of merger, I don't know the specifics of the business points on how it all worked out, you know, but happy I, for all involved. I'm a believer in the Laird, that coconut creamer for the powdered coffee. We used to, I used to bring that um, on the road on on work trips. Yeah, yeah. I got and uh, got got some of that in the mail the other day. So thanks to all of them for saying, I'll bring it into the studio. Yeah. Products by Picky Bars and Laird Superfood. Beautiful. Um, should we talk about this QAnon Into the Storm documentary that we both watched? You know, we should talk about it just because you and I love to talk we've been, about it. We've been talking, well, we love talking about QAnon and we've been talking about it forever. Yes. And this 
this documentary kind of came and went. We both watched it. It never felt like the appropriate time to discuss it. I don't want to belabor it too long, but mm. I thought it was worth noting if people haven't seen it, it's on HBO Max right now. How many episodes is it? Four or five, something like no, that? No, si six? I think it's six. Yeah. Let me check. It's a pretty interesting yeah. uh, docu-series written and directed by this guy, Colin Hoback, yep. that, that goes into not so much the implications of the QAnon movement, but really the people behind it. Um, yep. For those that have been living under a rock and don't know what QAnon is, QAnon is the far right conspiracy theory alleging that a secret cabal of Satan worshiping cannibalistic pedophiles is running a global child sex trafficking ring yes. and plotted against former US President Donald Trump while he was in office. Uh, Q drops cryptic. Uh, what would you call them? Missives? Yes. On 8chan, which yes. is this horrible website. Started on 4chan, um, moved, to off, moved to 8chan. Yeah. 8chan notable for not just QAnon, but kind of being the message board for Gamergate and Pizzagate. Yeah. And this docu-series, Cullen goes to visit the people behind 8chan, which right. was this website started by f this guy, Fred Brennan, created 8chan who, um, what is the nature of his disorder? He's in a wheelchair. He was born with like some sort of brittle bone syndrome. Right, and it's a congenital. A congenital, so he couldn't right. develop a uh, ride and he couldn't like go out and play. Mm -hmm. And he was confined to kind of like a Mr. Glass, like in that, um, in that movie, but it also it involved some sort of malformations right. of his limbs. And so he basically, the way for him to become a full-blooded person, which he talked about on Rabbit Hole, and he talks about even more so in this, mm -hmm. and um, is to to have have this online presence. He was able to be like a top dog online, right? Kind of. Right. Yeah. Right. It became his real life. Yeah. Essentially, was being lived online. Yeah. Um, and he really understands the internet in a in a very profound way. He creates 8chan, um, grows 8chan to a certain point, and then basically is, I guess, verging on bankruptcy or just no, there was figure a, out how there to keep, was a moment, keep it going. There was a moment where the traffic was too much and he didn't have the resources to be able Sustain to it. like to keep it up. Right. And that's how he, I think, partnered with these guys. Yeah, so he ends up hooking up with this guy, Ron Watkins and his son, Jim Watkins, who are- No, Jim's the father. Or Jim's the father, yeah, Jim Watkins, uh, who Jim ends up actually acquiring 8chan from Fred. Fred relocates to Manila where Ron and Jim are operating. Yep. And through the docu-series, you get a glimpse into kind of the back office of 8chan yes. and it's rather illuminating and disturbing to actually see, <laughs> yes. you know, to see the how, how the sausage is made with this whole thing. Which, which you kind of hint like, the, like going into the series, I didn't know if I had to watch it because I'd, read, I'd listened to Rabbit Hole and Rabbit Hole mm -hmm. was so good at kind of like implying that the Watkins most likely had something to be like, if they weren't Q, they knew who it was, but you kind of thought it was one of them. Not originally, but they co-opted, like we'll get into that, but I always kind of was suspicious of those two people, the, the father and son in Manila. They're American, by the way. Mm -hmm. You know, but but going into seeing the way Cullen put it together and how and how he won the trust of these people who probably didn't want to be on camera, right. like going into this, he wins their trust. He's there for all these seminal moments, and he pieces it together. It's really brilliant, and I think uh, completely revealing about this father and son megalomania kind of like internet company 
that just, I mean, I still can't wrap my head around the motive. Well, Hoback is a fly on the wall. Like he never passes judgment mm -hmm. on these subjects throughout the movie. So on some level he's engendered their trust mm. and who knows what he told them about the purpose of this film that right, he was making. Right, right, I mean, right. we don't know, right. but on some level, they're all very comfortable having him around to yes. document this. And essentially- For months and months. It's, a, it's like a true crime story. Like he's trying to solve the riddle of who, who is QAnon. And yep. along the way, he interviews a lot of these QAnon YouTube people and pundit, pundits, et cetera. Um, and ultimately, you know, lands on it, it. It culminates with what I guess you could characterize as almost an admission by Ron Watkins that he is perhaps Q. Yes, but we should set this up because Jim Watkins, who runs the internet business out of Manila, his son Ron, who lives. This is shitty office, and it's just gross. It's, it's one of those high rises. Like, it's like all a, of this is coming from right, here, right? And he owns a pig. He's a yogi, a self-proclaimed right, yogi. He has a pig farm that owns a pig farm and a, and a health food store with their own bacon line. Yeah, <laughs> like this is legit. And he's a big fan of fancy watches and fancy pens and yes. changing his facial hair. Yes, and uh, and then. Obviously it's implied, but he doesn't get into it, but father and son um, do like to like frequent, <laughs> well, the son frequents like some sort of uh, massage parlor yeah. in uh, Sapporo, Japan. Well, it's unclear yeah. why Ron, the son, finds himself in all different parts of the world throughout this, they never yes. really explain that. Like, is he fleeing from the law? Like what's exactly going on? And Jim, meanwhile, the dad is constantly saying that he doesn't care about politics, that he's not interested in politics, that he doesn't really follow QAnon. Right. But fully right wing. Yeah, because his actions belie his words. And at some point, Jim comes back to the United States, which why? And he has to sell the pig farm. They don't really explain why. And Ron, like, was he working in intelligence? There's, there's, they hint at maybe he, had, he worked in intelligence. He was code monkey on Twitter, Ron right. Watkins. And, at one point he became like, I think Donald Trump shared a couple of his tweets. Right, so there's at one point, Ron talks about how there's a, there's a Republican operative who's, who's really figured out how to accelerate growth on Twitter, like some kind of algorithmic yes. solution that allows extreme um, stickiness and virality on that platform. And at some point Ron, hires this guy or enlists him to get his code monkey account on Twitter to blow up, which it does. And he ends up with like, I don't know, 700,000 or 500,000 right. followers, something like that. And then Trump is retweeting him. And this is in the latter stages of QAnon and, and 8chan. I think it was the vice versa. The, the Republican operative wanted to hype up code monkey because he was pro Q. He wanted the Q stuff out there, right? Cause it was beneficial to the Republican candidates or something like that. I don't know. But there was Code Monkey's personal account yep, that came yeah. a little bit later right, when right, he right. became outspoken. And the way that he used language on Twitter as Code Monkey, they track that against the vernacular used by QAnon. Yes. And they kind of graph it to demonstrate that, that there's a good chance that these are the same people. And I think that the short version is someone else was originally QAnon. We don't really know who that was. They were on uh, 4chan. It got moved to 8chan and at some point 
QAnon started to write differently. And that's when they think he had just disappeared mm-hmm. and Ron and Jim, took or maybe over. just Ron, took it over to keep it going because it was the primary driver yeah. of traffic to their web business. Yeah. But there was no real, they never really implied like what the motive was because they claim 8chan is a money loser. Mm-hmm. And then like, what would be, was it a game? Was he like, was it like just like this real life role-playing game for Ron? I think there is revelry and chaos yeah. with these guys. Like they're getting off on just wreaking havoc mm. and whatever, uh, you know, Jim would say about his, his disinterest in politics, he keeps popping up. He at some point has to go hire this first amendment lawyer in Washington and he's elated to be able to, to be, you know, a rabble rouser yes. in a congressional hearing at one point. And then Hoback is present with Jim uh, at the Capitol insurrection. Yes. And there's all this crazy footage. There's also footage of, of uh, the QAnon shaman. Yeah, early at these footage other of the Q events. shaman. Yeah, like early footage of him at these other get togethers, <laughs> yes, these yes. like conferences where yes. you see this guy. Yes. I think it was you know, at well like an in Arizona advance. like council meeting or right. something. And he comes in with his So it's fascinating for that alone. Yeah. yeah. Um, and meanwhile, Fred Brennan, who created HN, starts to distance himself from the whole thing and becomes kind of a voice, a contrarian voice calling Ron and Jim to the mat on their behavior and sets about trying to get Eight Chan, which later becomes Eight Kun, dismantled. Yeah, and we don't want to get into all the spoilers, but the, because it's his, watching Fred's journey is is actually riveting, and, mm-hmm. and um, to me, like there was so much great footage that kind of like he he connects this up to like all the way back early internet kind of uh, stories, like every episode. I'd say critically the first episode. If you watch the first episode and feel disjointed and kind of your head spinning, I, f- I felt like the first episode was weak in that it co- tried to cover too much and it was like way disjointed. But the subsequent episodes I think are really well crafted. Um, he has this, he's when it talks about free speech, he, he pulls up the KKK march in Illinois in the 70s that the ACLU sued to allow hap- mm-hmm. to happen because it was, you know, the idea was get speech out there in public. I thought right. that was an interesting story. The Skokie Nazis. Yeah, Skokie Nazis. And then uh, the heaviest footage to me was not, you know, they used the New Yorker footage with the Capitol riot, but to me, the heaviest footage was the Christchurch killer, mm-hmm. the guy that went and shot people in a, in a mosque, I think 30 or something. I forget how many died completely. It was like 30 or 40. And you see him, remember he live streamed this. This was something that was live streamed and it was on 8chan. People were watching Ron, Facebook. Ron was. Yeah, no, the um, Christchurch killer. Oh, the killer live was streamed live streamed, own, but, it was, but then it was hosted on, on 8chan. It was on Facebook where he was live streaming and 8chan was the comments were on 8chan uh-huh. where people were watching it and commenting. And um, you don't see, there's not. There's a little bit of blood. You see all the way up when he's driving, to, like as if he's just whistling, driving to work. It's the sketchiest, cra- it's the scariest moment I think I've. And I've seen some crazy stuff that that is out there, like of of these crimes that we've all heard of. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything that was as chilling as that to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's horrific. Yeah. It's horrific. And then to hear Ron and Jim, you know, refuse to accept any responsibility. Right. For 
proliferating this kind of. But that's content. what happened. That was the yeah. that was what that was the nadir of eight chan. That's mm -hmm. why it has to be called eight kun now, right? Because at that point, that was it. Like once that happened, and then right after that was the synagogue shooting in San Diego, mm -hmm. and that was the end of eight chan. Right. Yeah. So it would have been nice if the series delved a little bit more deeply into the implications of all of this. It really is just a story of following these guys around and trying to understand why they were doing what they were doing, yes. being these, these you know, chaos agents. And we don't really get answers to that. No, it's, it's just an offbeat tech story, in a, in, but with real world implications. And unfortunately, I think why, what you're getting at, the unsatisfying conclusion is really, just that they wanted to fuck with everybody. Mm -hmm. And like, we all had to live through it. And that's really, you know, a difficult nihilistic pill to swallow. <laughs> it's a tough one. At the end of the day, <laughs> yes. after everything that's happened, it yes. was like, there's no, you know, it's not, it, it wasn't motivated by ideology. Or money, they didn't get paid right. out of this. Yeah, none of them are making any, they're losing money on right. this whole thing. Right. So what was the purpose? Like it was purposeless entertainment for a few people and torture for everybody else. Yeah. All right, enough said on that. But everybody, you should watch yeah, it. Yeah, you should check it's it out. It's on HBO Max, yeah. QAnon Into the Storm. Yeah. Um, what else you got for me? I, I have something to show. This is the new Rachel Kushner collection, The Hard Crowd. It's essays from 2000 to 2020. Uh, Rachel Kushner is one of my three favorite writers currently working along with Michael Chabon and Colson Whitehead, who are obviously both Pulitzer Prize winners. Kushner has previous novels, Flamethrowers, which is a spectacular uh, book about uh, 1970s motorcycles and, and the art scene in New York and, and the socialist uprising in, in Italy in the 70s. Um, Telex from Cuba is about kind of this mining town, company town in Cuba, American owned right before the Cuban revolution, um, which is a spectacular read. And Mars Room is about uh, a women's prison. Uh, but this book kind of includes essays that inform all those novels. So if you'd seen, well, not Telex from Cuba so much, but Flamethrowers and Mars Room, and it includes like a look back at like what San Francisco used to be pre-tech and some really great uh, stories about the old haunts where the bands played and where she used to bartend. And, mm. and she herself is great with cars and is a, great, is a motorcycle rider. And she, at the time she actually ran, participated in an illegal race down Baja from Tijuana all the way to Cabo, illegal on highway one. And she wiped out going over hundred miles an hour at one point, wow. which is a scene that is kind of used in um, flamethrowers also in a different way. But like she's an incredible motorcycle rider too, or she was in her early days, and uh, just a remarkable read. There's you know, given the news of today, which is you know, Israel police, Israeli police, you know, invading uh, East Jerusalem and 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 uh, fighting with Palestinians there. There's a there's a story in here about. Palestinians living in East Jerusalem and, and it, that's riveting um, and very sad. And there's uh, essays on, you know, Marguerite Duras and mm. motorcycles and San Francisco. And so I just thought if you haven't heard of her and you are interested in the nonfiction stuff, this is the one, otherwise pick up flamethrowers or Telex from Cuba. You should get to know Rachel Kushner. That's cool. The hard crowd. Did that just come crowd. out? Just came out, got a great review in the New York times from Dwight Garner. But to me, she she when she's at her best, she's electric, like just electric. It's very highbrow. 
it is a little highbrow. She does, yeah. she writes about art, she writes about literature and she it's writes cool. about hardcore motorcycles. Yeah. yeah. All right, man, I'll check it out. All right. I, I've never read her work, so I'm yeah. for an adventure with that. Let's introduce her to the, uh, to the RRP crowd. Let's, I think we just Which did. is a different kind of hard crowd. <laughs> We're more of a soft crowd. A little crowd. bit. We're in a soft crowd. For the crowd. three people that are still with us. <laughs> My little share of the week of finds that I've been enjoying is perhaps a little bit more lowbrow, but also kind of highbrow. I've been enjoying this television series called Le Bureau. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite possibly one of the best things I've ever seen on television. So it's extraordinary. It's the third version of The Office, right? Well, Le Bureau means the office. Right. I think the full title is like Le Bureau de Legends of Legends, the Bureau of Le the Office of Legends, <laughs> but it's essentially it's it's five seasons long. It's a French series that chronicles life in the DGSA, which is basically their CIA. Oh. But it's as if you were watching. It's like if you were watching a Bourne movie, but everything transpires in the office and you never like, there's no action, there's no fights, there's no, almost all of it is about tradecraft, but tradecraft in terms of how people kind of navigate and communicate in the bartering world of intelligence. So the legends are the legends are the agents who adopt these alternative identities and then go out into the world sourcing information, like infiltrating primarily Middle Eastern countries and the experiences that they have. And it all centers around a love story because in season one, the main character who's played by Matthew Kasovitz, who you might know from Amelie, he plays uh, this undercover agent who's dispatched to Syria for six years. He falls in love with a, a Syrian professor and he has to return to France, like his tenure is up. And in the first scene, he basically lies to her and he loses her and for the next five seasons, it's this journey of trying to get back to her and all this crazy stuff happens. But what's beautiful about it, it's very French. There's a lot of sort of existential voiceover. Is it throughout. drama or comedy? It's drama. Okay. No, it's not comedy at all. It's very serious. All right. But it's also, it has lighthearted moments. And I think what's really unique about it is the manner in which it's something you don't see in American television where it really takes its time. Mm. It's on a very slow boil. And it's really not about the action, it's about the relationship between all of these people that work together in the DGSA and um, these characters that you you really just fall in love with. Hmm. So it's, it's a beautifully wrought story. It's extraordinarily rendered with extreme precision and I can't recommend it enough. Like I did not want it to end. And it's one of those experiences where I'm a season and a half in, and I'm just delighted that there's five seasons and I get to just immerse myself mm. in the world of these characters. It's subtitled, so it's a little bit of work to have right. to deal with that. Sounds highbrow. But honestly, like it was absolutely delightful and wonderful. So I can't recommend nice. it enough. I think it's on AMC, which you can access through Amazon or, uh, or Apple TV. Can I ask you something about TV series? Sure. Do you feel like when a series is, is starting to, to lose itself, like after like the first, I'm not talking about this one, but like, you know, series, like they get a little long and then you, you, they're not as good as they used to be. Do you stick with it till the end or do you get out early? 
It depends. I've I've gotten better at getting out early. <laughs> Because there's so much. <laughs> you got to get out, right? There's so much good stuff. <laughs> I don't have time for something that isn't really completely engrossing. I'm not going down with so your shit. I don't have tolerance. Like right. if I start to lose it, like I'll give it a chance because sometimes it takes a while, right? right? So right. I'm not going to bail prematurely. No. I'll give it enough time so that I can make an informed decision yeah. about how much investment I'm going to make yes. in this. But if it's not doing it for me, I'm out. And, and the other thing I have no tolerance for anymore is the idea that you're gonna drip episodes out of a show week by week, like, no. come on guys, Pop them out. we're past that. Drop the whole season yeah. or get out of town. Like, yeah. I don't understand this, hanging onto this model of we're gonna hold back. Drop and, the whole season or get out of the business. If it's something that I think is gonna be great, <laughs> yeah. I, will, I will wait until the whole season is out before yeah. I even begin because it, I don't wanna get a couple of episodes in and then have to wait. HBO is one of the worst offenders. They're terrible. Yeah. Netflix understands this. Netflix does understand it, but um, interesting. I, I always, if you've entertained me, I'll give you some rope, but I will get out early. I am not afraid to cut ties on a, and now, you know what, with books too. I'm not afraid to cut the ties right. if I have to. Yeah, I think it's it's harder with books because you're like, I bought this book and it's here and I <laughs> have to right. finish it, you know? And it's <laughs> like, no, you don't. No, you don't. But this book I've read cover to cover. Good. Yes. You're a strong man. Uh, no. Sir Adam Skolnick, content read. creator. <laughs> All right. Rachel Kushner. We are, what, what are we doing with this podcast episode? We're all over the place talking about all kinds of, I don't know. Is this working for you guys? For the people out there in the world? Let us know. Yeah. All right. We got a couple cool wins of the week though. Let's go. So let's, let's bring it back. All right. This win of the week, I'm going to set up for you. Um, this is right in your wheelhouse. This, this is, is shockwaves in the food world. Great. This is Jeff Gordoner and you had to talk about it. Gordoner. Gordoner. Well, this is a massive story in the food world. Basically, Daniel Hum, who's the proprietor chef of 11 Madison Park, which is arguably the premier restaurant in New York City. I think it has four Michelin stars, mm. which is extraordinary. Yes. Um, had to close down during the pandemic, like all restaurants, and just announced the other week that it was going to reopen as a 100% plant-based restaurant, which is, truly a landmark, extraordinary decision. Of the 132 restaurants worldwide with three Michelin stars, not one is vegan. So he's making a very bold statement. I mean, this is the culinary world at its most elite. Like yes. to eat at this restaurant is unbelievably expensive. It's $335 um, tasting menu. Exactly. Yeah. And I think if you're going as a couple to eat, you're not getting out of there for like less than a thousand dollars. It's like crazy expensive. Right. But this is the very apex pinnacle of fine dining. And for him to say, we're gonna toss out that menu and we're gonna do it 100% plant-based. I mean, it was trending on Twitter. There was a yep. million articles, New York Times, Eater, everybody was covering this, lots of opinions, uh, plenty of poo-pooers and, and naysayers, you know, saying it's not gonna work, but I couldn't be more excited about this. I think it's really cool. Uh, Jeff Gordonier immediately texted me and says, yep. <laughs> he's like, you, he's covered Daniel for yeah. Esquire. So he knows him and he- You're linking to that story, right? It's an, it's an incredible profile, the Esquire profile that right. he wrote. Yeah. yeah. So Jeff's profile is called Daniel Hum is the greatest chef in America and possibly the world. Yeah. Like that's what we're talking about yeah. here. Um, yeah, an amazing profile by Jeff, who's obviously a wonderful, beautiful writer. 
But Jeff gave me his email address and he's like, you gotta get in touch with him right away. Like this is hot. So I emailed, I cold emailed Daniel Hum, expecting like there's a 10% chance this guy's gonna get back to me in the middle of this media firestorm. Yeah. But he got right back to me and he's like, yeah, I want you to, I wanna do the podcast, but I want you to eat at the restaurant first. Yeah. So I'm like, adventure, here we come. Yeah, that's right. I go to New York, I wanna eat at this restaurant. I wanna get them on the podcast. Yeah. I wanna hear the whole story. So we're looking at when we can schedule that, but hopefully that will happen in the not too distant future. Probably, I'll pr I probably won't be able to go there until, until like uh, July. But I'm available. You want to come? Yeah, we'll I'm see. available. All right, I'll let you know. I thought you said you shouldn't be overly. Wait, available. Oh, is that overly What's the available? appropriate amount of availability? <laughs> you can't. You can't I mean, complain I mean, about not getting sleep and having a baby and can't train and then suddenly be available to go to New York City at the drop of a hat. But we'll talk about it. We'll see. We'll see how this episode. Listeners, goes. I'm not sure I'm invited. <laughs> Um, I'll just dangle it, we'll see. Um, what's also cool about Daniel is that this guy was almost a pro cyclist, right. like a very accomplished cyclist. He was pro. He was looking at a pro career. He, he could have gone pro, that was available to him, I believe. Okay. But he made a decision. He recognized like, listen, I'm never gonna be at the highest level of this. Right. And he started pursuing an alternative career. He's path. like one of those people great at a lot of things. Isn't he a three right. hour marathoner? He's a very good marathon runner in, I believe in 2008, he ran 251 mm. in the New York marathon. He, I don't know if he runs it every year. He's run it a bunch of times, 312, three, I think he ran 310 in 2018. So marathon runner, almost pro cyclist, obviously very fit athletic guy who has been eating, his, predominantly vegetarian for many years, I believe at this point, and has been thinking about making this transition in the food world with his restaurant um, in cognizance of not just the way the world is moving, but his responsibility as somebody who is you know, very prominent in this world. And I think it's ballsy to do that. Very exciting. And I wish him only the best and I can't wait to enjoy his food and meet him and get him on the podcast. In researching this little story, I came across this gem like that uh, in I think New York Times, one of their stories talked about Ann Kim, the chef in Minneapolis has Suki and Mimi of uh, like a highly rated uh, vegan menu mm. or vegan restaurant. Did you hear about that? Did you I know didn't. About that? And since I was just in Minneapolis, now I'm bombed. Brogan? I didn't know about that. Get over there, bro. Yeah, Brogan, maybe he can go do a little recon. Brogan, if Jeff you- Jeff is probably, Jeff Gordnier might've covered this restaurant. And maybe, maybe it was in that, should, I in that ask story. As well, I pulled that from somewhere. But you know, what Hum is doing isn't totally unprecedented. Right. A couple restaurants have have tried this, perhaps most notably L'Arpege in Paris, which mm -hmm. uh, I had the great opportunity of experiencing. Julie took me there for my birthday oh. several years ago. Um, the chef there, Alain Passard, he's called the vegetable whisperer. He stopped serving meat in his restaurant in 2001. And from what I understand, L'Arpege has only become more prominent. It's it's quite the place. And it's one of those places where it's just like serving after, you know, it's like a million dishes and you're there for like five hours. Love and it. every plate is like a little thing, but you know, extraordinary. It, this is like, I think the context of this Epicurious is not having any more meat um, or like there's no beef anymore on any of their recipes. They're not putting it, publishing any more beef recipes because of climate change. Like there is a, this does seem to be a movement that's kind of creeping towards something significant. I mean, already it's significant when you have 
Daniel's restaurant going, you know, 11 Madison going, going completely vegan or vegetable, not completely vegan. They're doing honey and milk for coffee. But other than that, completely plant-based. I think that's the only non-plant-based menu items. But he um, hasn't revealed the actual menu yet. Yeah. But like it is a major thing when you're talking about it's, it's a con. There's, there's a symbolically context it's massive. Yeah, yeah, too. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. So that's the kind of highbrow, like food at the highest level yep. of the culinary universe. But I want to take it back down to boots on the ground and remind people that this quest that we're on to um, introduce the plant-based lifestyle to as many people as possible is only gonna get so far unless we redress the problem of food deserts and access in urban communities to healthy plant-based foods, right? Like it's one thing to, you know, I'm gonna go to 11 Madison Park and drop major coin on this crazy meal, but what about the average everyday person who's living in- um, East New York. Yeah, exactly. And there aren't even grocery stores, let alone, you know, any kind of healthy plant-based options. Uh, which brings me to the next thing I wanted to share, which is my friend, Neil Zacharias has founded this new company. He's the CEO of a new venture called Plantega. You can check it out online at Eat Plantega. Um, and essentially the idea, I love this, it's brilliant, is creating these basically kiosks, like refrigerated kiosks that are stocked with healthy plant-based foods that they're placing in bodegas. They've started in New York. I don't know how many locations they have right now, but in bodegas across New York City, they're adding these refrigerated kiosks that are just stocked with all kinds of healthy stuff Mm -hmm. so that they're expanding the availability of healthy, affordable options into these food desert neighborhoods. And some bodegas have like a grill oriented and they also have like a grill option or something like that for some takeaway cheap takeaway stuff. Oh, is there a grill? There maybe was it's on their kind of like Starbucks where you, you pull it out of the fridge and they'll grill it up there maybe, in maybe. the bodega. But maybe. my understanding is that it's pre-prepared like sandwiches okay. and salads and things like that. Fantastic. And this is just out of the gate, it's brand new, but certainly an idea we're celebrating. And I think it could go a long way towards really addressing this problem of healthy food access in, um, underprivileged communities. So good on you, Nil, and let me know how I can support this mission and what you guys are trying to achieve. And you know, I just made a brunch, a Mother's Day brunch with Beyond Meat breakfast sausage, Miyoko's butter, and just eggs. What do you want, a medal? No, I'm just saying. You're like, those are the like, three on here yeah, that I'm I know, reading. Right? Yeah, that, they partnered it, with yeah. Miyoko's Beyond and Just. Miyoko's is fabulous, yeah. So cool. Cool. Awesome, should we uh, go to some listener questions? I would love that. Do it. Is it, time? it up. Is it time to do it? It is time. Okay. What do you think would happen if we went to a daily show? You and me daily? Daily. I'm available. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we ready? Okay. Here we go. Greg from Virginia. Hey, Rich. It's Greg from Virginia. My question is about the topic of money. As a child, I was taught that money is a variable that has a significant influence on our choices. How are you going to pay for it? was my parents' first question when I would talk about my dreams. In Finding Ultra Rich, you share a moment when you had left your law practice, was waiting to get traction as an author, and was on the brink of financial ruin. How were you able to maintain the pursuit of your dream and resist the urge to return to your law practice exclusively just to provide for your family? 
How would you advise others to think about money, especially if it creates an obstacle to making change? I want to thank you guys very much for your valuable insight in your podcast, and especially this particular format. This interactive format makes it much easier and much better to be able to interact. Have you guys having a great day. Bye. Thanks, Greg. That's a great question. I think it's an important question. No doubt. Um, I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying that uh, I am not telling anyone what to do or not to do, nor am I giving any financial advice, uh, but I will share a little bit of my experience. And, and I think, first of all, I'm with you. I grew up in the same way, um, being told, you know, when I would give voice to anything aspirational or, inspira- you know, sort of aspirational for my life, um, being brought back down to earth with a heavy dose of kind of prudent reality. So I'm on, I'm on your wavelength, Greg. Um, but the way I've come to think about this when I think about money as this balance or this dance between responsibility or prudence on the one hand, and on the other hand, understanding that that money is just energy. You know, money is, of course, a variable that is going to influence choice. But the key, I think, first and foremost, is understanding that we don't live in a zero-sum game. And that by adopting a mindset of universal abundance will help you really get that money just like everything else is this waveform, this energy, something that in my experience tends to be less important and and flow a little bit more freely when your life is oriented not around the pursuit of it, but rather the pursuit of purpose. It is true that I grew up with parents who were hammering a similar message into me and I oriented my life around that perspective. And I found that in so doing, it didn't matter how much money I made, I never had any of it because I was so out of alignment with a greater sense of purpose that I would compensate for that lack of fulfillment by spending whatever I had to kind of fill that hole. So I was chasing the dragon in a way that I was never gonna get on top of it. And Mm. it was only by, kind of um, crashing into a wall with all of that and flaming out that I was able to reconfigure my relationship to money. And I had to do it through an extended period of hardship where we didn't have any. And that forced me to get really clear on what my needs were and what was most important to me and what my values were. And I made a commitment to pursue those values irrespective of any kind of financial reward. And I will say there were plenty of moments where my faith was tested and, if Julie had not had my back, I very well would have you know, scampered back and tried to get a job that would pay the bills because it was very difficult. It was emasculating, at times very humiliating. Didn't you even have to take some like small kind of law gigs at one point when you were when things weren't going well, well. I did I did After I was I was sort out. of practicing law as I was writing Finding Ultra, but yeah. when that book came out, I was like, I'm not do I, I drew a line in the sand. I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. Okay. I'm trusting that this is going to open up the door to a new path. And it took a long time. You know, the phone just didn't ring for a long time. And right. there were there were there were months where we were scrambling like nobody's business and having cars repossessed and having our trash bins taken away and right. being unable to you know figure out how we were going to feed the kids that night it was really really difficult um, my faith was tremendously tested 
Julie, you know, I, I look back on it and I don't know how she had the fortitude to like have my back in that period of time, but she did. And she would constantly hammer home this idea of like, the only way out is forward. Like you can't go backwards. Like you've come too far. Mm. The answers you seek are ahead of you and I'm with you and we're together and we'll figure it out. And money comes and money goes. But what's important here is you finding your voice and figuring out you know, how you're gonna move forward in the world. And that's like a precious gift. Mm. And you know, I'm here to help you honor that. Mm. And that takes an extraordinary human being it to does. do that. It really does. It's like, not I the average person. <laughs> it's not like, oh, behind every great man, there's a great woman. Like, no, she was like the Jedi right. while I was like panicking in the corner, right. you know? And right. so right. without her, none of this happens. Um, but I think because we went without for such a long period of time and we were compelled to like live in the moment and it really did reframe my relationship with money. And these decisions that I made about how I wanted to live my life were decoupled from any pursuit of financial gain. Like mm. I, I made that barter. I was like, I don't care. This is the way I wanna go. This is what makes me happy. This is what's fulfilling. This is where I see promise and opportunity, even if I don't see it right now. And it didn't have anything to do with financial remuneration. Mm. Um, so you removed that completely from so the mind, by the moving, equation. By equation. like removing that yeah. in some weird spiritual equation, I created space for it to come in in a different way. Mm. Um, and by continuing to trust my instincts and follow my curiosity and double down on these values as kind of the foundation or the architecture for what I do professionally, I'm suddenly, you know, it's ridiculous, but like I make way more money now than I ever, I never thought I would ever have money. Like I just made peace with that. I will never have money, that's fine. And now, I've got all this money. Like I'm like, technically I'm like rich, which is fucking crazy. Cause you're rich <laughs> like, times too. Like I, you know, it's like, but it doesn't, I don't think about it. I don't think about how much money is coming in. My spending habits haven't really changed. I don't really do anything differently. Like my whole relationship with money is different. Like I just hold it loosely. Mm. And so I don't know how that's instructive to somebody else other than to say, that if I've discovered anything through this journey, it's that the key is figuring out what gets you excited in the morning. Mm. And with that, you have this opportunity and this responsibility to get clear on how to orient like purpose premised on those values. And whatever it is that is lighting you up, the more that you continue to do it, the universe starts to orient around you, like it congeals around you to provide opportunities. And I think over time, those opportunities lead to some kind of vocational situation that will allow you to meet your needs. Yeah. I'm not saying you're gonna get rich or anything like that, but you will find yourself in a situation where work doesn't feel like work mm. because it's something that you would be doing anyway. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does, I think it's great. And I think Jedi Julie deserves to be an action figure. She does. We know she, people who make really action does. figures. Yeah. She'd be good. Yeah. I think the other thing too is, is you know, on that note of here's my dream. Well, how are you gonna pay for it? All I can tell you is that every dream that I've realized I couldn't pay for. Right. If I'd set out at the beginning to say, well, I have this thing, how am I gonna pay for it? I never would have gotten out of the gate. 
the thing is you have to just start pursuing it. And like I said, the universe arranges itself around you to provide the support that you need. It might not look like what you would like it to look like, and it might not be as as much as you would like it to be, but generally it allows you to take one more forward step. Like yeah. that's it. You don't get the blueprint. You don't get to see where this is leading or how it's all gonna play out. You just don't get to see the whole picture. All you get on the daily is a test. Can you take that next step? Your faith is tested. And I think every time you show up, to pass that test, there's something that happens in the universe where it says, okay, he passed that test. We'll give him a little, we'll throw him a little loose change. See see if he can pass the next test. And also the conversations around you, including from if your parents are, are around and still not just in your head, but in your life, um, those conversations start to change too, but it could take many years. It could take five years, it could take 10 years, mm -hmm. but the conversations all of a sudden you'll notice one day and it won't be about you know, can he do it or you should get a job or blah, blah, blah. It'll be, uh, you know, conversations about pride, like, you know. Right, that, because that, when, you're, be on your when you're in it, you cannot, yeah. you cannot expect the support no. of people like that. They're just not going to. Like I, I everybody thought I was insane. Right. And people were telling Julie, like, what's the matter with you? You gotta right. divorce this guy. Like he's lost his, he's completely lost it. Yeah. So. That's the way that it is yeah. when you're in the midst of it. Yeah. And that makes it even harder to find your footing because yeah. you start to question yourself. Like yeah. maybe I am insane. Everybody else thinks I'm right. insane. Of course, when it all works out, then it's like, oh, we're so proud of you. And we saw it all the time and we supported you. They forget that they were the ones saying, how are you gonna pay right. for that thing in right. the beginning? And that's just the way that it's wired. That's the way it goes. And it's not for everybody. Like it was really hard. No. Like I'm not wishing this journey on people. Not everybody is cut out for it. If you're happy in your job and you have a profession and your goal is to provide for your family and have barbecues on the weekends, that's great. I'm not telling people to quit their job. I'm speaking to the person who's got that yearning in their soul where they feel like they just can't do it one more day. And they have this sense or this calling that there's something out there. And all I'm saying is listen to that, pay attention to it, try to put a little wind in that sail, you know, put a little fertilizer in that soil and be open to where it might lead you and pay attention. You're talking to Greg from Virginia. That's right. Thanks for the question, Thanks, Greg. Greg. Now we're gonna to go to the great North. Hi, Adam and Rich. This is John calling from the North of England. Um, so just first off, I just wanna say thank you for all of the work on the podcast. Um, I went vegan good few years ago after my dad died and I had a general reorientation in my life and I did it out of kind of ethical reasons. And then I remember kind of suddenly freaking out a little bit like, oh my God, am I going to wither away? Like, how do I do this um, as someone who's quite athletic and, you know, want, likes to lift weights and run and ride my bike and stuff. And it was finding the ritual podcast and the information on that that really kind of settled me into um, a plant-based lifestyle. So yeah, thanks for that. Um, but my question is really, so I learned to swim three years ago um, and this summer I'm doing a swim run that has lakes and um, trail running and it has a, a lake crossing in it. Um, I don't have any access to lakes to train in because they become too polluted uh, in my neck of the woods. Um, but I do have access to the sea and obviously it can be really rough or it can be cold. So it's kind of warmed up to about 44, 45 Fahrenheit now. Um, but I can't do huge distances because I just get really, really cold. Um, and if it's too rough, then I just get beaten up and I, again, can't do huge distances. So I also have 
access to a swimming pool. And I'm just wondering, how would you kind of um, navigate those two options? Because neither of them is specific to the swim run I'm doing. But, you know, would you emphasize the pool? Would you emphasize the sea? And, and which would you use for what? Um, thanks very much. Bye. John coming in hot with the mm. vegan swim run question. With My the, favorite kind of question. Yes. And with the great accent right out of the I north, know. the north the in north, Game of Thrones. How far north in it's England? The north. Is John. The north. John, wait, is John from the north? Yeah. Like Jon Snow? Is this Jon Snow? <laughs> <laughs> Jon Snow's not in England. First of all, Jon Snow just learned to swim. That's a, to me that the best part of this question is he just learned to swim three years ago, right? And he's in a swim run. I love it. That's amazing. It I is. love that. Do you want to take a stab at this answer first? Well, I'll let you talk about the best way to train since I just kind of wing mm -hmm. it. But um, I mean, with apologies to Nicholas, who I don't wing it. I, I do as I'm told, but I do also wing it to some yeah. degree. Um, the one thing I would recommend because of your ocean, like for me personally, I like to swim in the ocean. I don't swim in pools. Um, but uh, since you're new to swimming, I would guess like a lot of even triathletes that are very good in pools, they'd often the transition to getting into open water is a little bit rougher. They're not that great or comfortable. Let's just say they're not as comfortable in open water. Mm -hmm. And there is a comfort level of swimming in open water that, that you won't have in the, although there will be wind in a lake and there might be waves, it won't be the same thing as a rough sea. Sure. And so um, if you're going to go into the sea and there's not a lifeguard on duty and you're swimming alone, I'd be very cautious at first if you're not comfortable with it. Um, I would try to swim in tandem at least in the open water, especially at those temperatures, that's dangerous. And um, it can be dangerous if you're not in the right wetsuit. Um, and so I think that those things, you know, in Hawaii, there's a phrase they have on almost every beach, when in doubt, don't go out. And I think it's okay to feel some butterflies, but I don't think it's okay to put yourself in a dangerous situation. So um, I do think you need to be mindful of conditions and temperature if you're gonna be alone. And so that's the only thing I would say about the ocean. Adam dropping open water safety knowledge, yes. like a true lifeguard, yes. a true waterman. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's what I think. Um, I think you're gonna be fine, John. Uh, kudos for tackling a swim run three years into learning how to swim. I think that's ballsy and amazing. If it makes you feel any better, I trained almost entirely for the Otillo Swim Run World Championships in a swimming pool. Yeah. I almost never went in open water. Now, that being said, I have a lot of open water experience. So I, I didn't feel like the need to get comfortable in open water. So what I would say to you is double down on the swimming pool use that as much as possible to develop your fitness and your endurance and your strength. Um, and you can also use the pool for in and out, you know, swim run transitions, right? So in and out, swim, swim run, swim run, swim run, get used to swimming and running. And if you can, if they'll let you at your pool, swim in the pool with your wetsuit on and your shoes on because swimming with tennis shoes is a very strange it is. sensation uh, that you're gonna have to acclimate to. And if you can, if the, if the pool will allow you to do it, I would suggest doing that as much as possible. And of course, using the hand paddles and getting used to all the gear and all of that is really important. Um, but I would say that the pool is suboptimal. You always wanna be kind of out in the natural environment uh, in terrain that's gonna mimic the actual race course and that isn't quite available to you. So what I would suggest is you avail yourself of the sea but just pick your moments. Like once a week, 
or when the 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 conditions are are you know fine like it's not I wouldn't go out when it's crazy choppy or anything like that and also 44 45 degrees is no joke so make sure you're wearing an appropriate wetsuit for that kind of weather um and five get, mil at but least get out, yeah get out yeah, get mil. out in the in the in the sea um and you could do short swim run workouts where you're just you swim 200 meters and then run up the shore and you know run for a half mile and then go, and then run back into the See, so you're not really in the ocean that long, but you're getting used to, you're acclimating not only to what it feels like to be in open water, but also the weirdness and discomfort of, of running up the shore and running back in, like developing a comfort level with all of that um, from a mental and emotional perspective, I think is huge. Because if you can handle that, these lakes are gonna be so easy, mm. right? There'll be no intimidation because no. you've been out battling freezing water um, in, in the sea. The lakes, of course, are not gonna have salt water. So there's a different kind of buoyancy thing. Not that you buoyant. might have, yeah, you're not gonna be as buoyant. Like there's something that when you swim in the ocean, you ride very high in the water and it actually makes it easier to swim yeah. if it's calm. Um, so the lake, you're gonna, you're gonna ride a little bit lower um, and you'll feel a little bit more like you're fighting the water than you would in the ocean. But I think you're actually in a great situation to be mentally prepared because of the conditions in, in which you live. So pick your moments. Um, the lakes will be easy after those North Sea excursions. And I don't know what the, the, the land terrain is around you. And I don't know what the terrain of this specific swim run course looks like, but I would, if I made one mistake, and I've said this before on the podcast in training for Sweden, you know, I was just running trails and, and kind of gradual climbs and things like that. And the, the course in Sweden was very technical, it was very rocky. Um, there was a lot of climb, you know, there, there actually wasn't that much running. It was a lot of trudging and climbing up rocks and things like that. So get really familiar with the terrain of the race and try to find terrain in your natural environment near your home where you can mimic what it's gonna be like during the race. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for, for me saying, don't go out alone. I mean, I, I do go out and swimming alone, but it, the temperatures are different. But um, I will say, uh, I was gonna ask you, Rich, what do you think about, like, since it's a lake that he hasn't been in, like how you went to um, the Sierras to train at altitude and swam in Tahoe. Mm -hmm. um, would you recommend maybe if you have time and you have the, the, the time and inclination, maybe a, a week excursion or even just a weekend to a lake that you do feel comfortable swimming in. That wouldn't yeah, be a bad idea. Yeah, if he has the ability and the time, yeah. you could drive to some lake that maybe is not that far away yeah. just, just for the day or for the weekend or something yeah. like that and get used to you know experiencing what it's like to swim in a lake. I think that'd if be- If he hasn't done that that'd before. That'd be good, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. But I promise you, if you get comfortable swimming <laughs> in the North in the Sea, North sea uh, you're gonna be fine in the lake. Yeah, you might wanna get a seven mil wetsuit for swimming and it, it'd be, you know, uh, unless you're unless you're doing swim run and in that case, just get a thick, the thickest swim run wetsuit you can get for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, let's go to our man in Vegas, our German in Vegas. Hey guys, this is uh, Philip. I'm originally from Germany. Um, I live in Las Vegas now for a year. Um, I was in a relationship when the pandemic started and uh, broke things up a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that bothered me in the relationship really was um, alcohol involved. And um, for you, Rich, with the experiences you have made, um, 
I, I have a question. How are you actually dealing with people in your surroundings and people in your environment that have not a real addiction where they get hooked up on alcohol or things like every single day, but more even, you know, oh, let's have a glass of wine and then one glass turns into two or three and it happens like once a week. How do you handle um, people like that? Because I always had issues uh, with that. So, yeah, thanks for everything you guys do. You're very inspirational and you helped me through the hard times. And, uh, yeah, keep up the good work and talk to you soon. Thanks for your question, Philip. Uh, I suspect that this is probably a more prevalent issue living in a place like Las Vegas than yes. it would be maybe in other locations. Um, I'm empathetic to the predicament, but I would say for me, it's kind of a double-edged situation because on the one hand, um, you know, I've been sober for a long time and I'm really just never around people like that anymore. Uh, it's just not part of my inner social circle uh, like it once was. But if and when I am around that kind of scenario, it doesn't really bother me that much because my sobriety is strong. It's not like I'm triggered by it. I can be around people that are drinking a couple of glasses of wine and it it doesn't really affect me in mm -hmm. any meaningful way. Like mm -hmm. if it starts getting crazy and people are getting hammered and stuff like that, I'll just leave because it's boring for me. Right, right. But it's not like I feel threatened or anything like that. Um, and the reason I'm not around people like that very much is that I just don't, I don't seek out those people or those experiences anymore like I used to. Um, but when I, when, I, when I do encounter them, I, I'm, I'm pretty capable of managing it without incidents. Um, it doesn't affect your energy. No, it doesn't affect my energy. So, so one question I guess I would have up front that I'm curious about is, is why, Philip, it's so bothersome for you because you're talking about people who have maybe two or three glasses of wine once a week, which is a pretty, for a lot of people, like that's a pretty normal thing. It's not that out of control. No. So what is it inside of you that's getting activated by that? And if it's just that you don't wanna have that in your environment, then that's cool. Th but that just means that. that just means you're gonna have to expand your social circle and find other types of people to hang out with or, you know, involve yourself in, in like get out to the Red Rocks or just get, you know, go to places where it's a different type of cultural cohesion where right. drinking really isn't so front and center in terms of how you're interacting socially. Um, personally, I'm just not in the business of, of taking anyone else's inventory. So I don't sit in judgment of somebody who wants to have two or three glasses of wine, but, and I would say this to you, like we do have choices as to who we spend our time with. And I think in my experience, the best way of managing this kind of situation, if you're just not enthusiastic about being with people who are into that right now, you don't have to make a big statement about it or a manifesto about how you're not gonna stand for this anymore. You could just back away slowly from that environment. Right. And I think of it in terms of concentric rings of intimacy. So if you think of yourself in the middle and then there's a bunch of circles outside of you that expand, who is in that inner ring? And those would be the people that you trust the most, you trust implicitly. Then the next ring of people would be people who maybe are just more casual friends and it kind of goes out from there. So I'm constantly thinking about the people that I keep in that inner circle and then the people who 
get moved to outer rings because something else happens and you have the ability to slowly transition your social time to more like-minded people who are aligned with your social habits and you can move those you know you can move away from those people or those people just get kind of slowly pushed out to a different range it doesn't mean that you can't be friends with them anymore it's just that the dynamic of your friendship might get tweaked a little bit mm. and it doesn't have to be that big a deal and i would also say that it's important you know on the subject of not taking anyone's inventory or making a big deal in terms of how you you don't have to proclaim this to anybody i think it's important to have compassion for the fact that it's been a fucking hard year for a mm. lot of people and certain people are gonna be like, I wanna have two or three glasses of wine. And if they can do that and they're happy with their life, that's their business. It's not mine to judge. So I tend to err on, on giving people a break and giving people some latitude and understanding that we all have different ways of coping with the various anxieties and stressors that, that we face. But ultimately this is about your relationship with you and I think it's incumbent upon you to stop focusing on what others are doing or being upset because people aren't behaving in a manner that you would prefer them to behave. What, you know, stop grinding on why they aren't doing, doing things your way and just focus more on, on your path and your choices and the people that you choose to spend time with. Well said. Is there anything else to say on that? I don't think so. I think you covered it. Yeah. You know, there you go. Are we and done? Do you think anyone's still listening? I, I I think there's a couple guys behind that curtain. <laughs> yeah, those guys. They're being yeah, paid to they're listen. They're being paid to listen. They have to. They can't leave yet. <laughs> you know what? Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for being appropriately available. Well, I, I might have. Was is it appropriate to camp out here the night before? Probably not. Okay. Well, I'm glad Probably I chose not. not to this time. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Did you bring your mask? You know what? Here's the thing. I'm going to be nice to you. I'm supposed to be nice to you. I'm not going to be mean to you. Here's the thing. This area, I'm sure, has a lot of this going on. I should have led with this. The coyotes have been making love outside my apartment area um, on a regular basis. And mm -hmm. it's on the next door app and everything. And they're all talking about it. And it's a, a very strange howling. I would imagine there's some coyote lovemaking happening around here. At quite night. a bit. Yeah, quite yeah. a bit. Quite a bit at night. You hear it at night. Um, Did you know they, they were, were in heat right now? Is that a thing? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what's that's happening. happening. That's what's happening. Yes. They tend to run down the middle of the road in front of our house in packs. And they, if people who, who haven't experienced this, it's like a, a loud screeching noise. Yes. It's rather alarming. It's different than the normal yipping. No, it's not like, it doesn't sound like a wolf or a dog or something like that. It sounds like there's some periodization happening in the coyote community. <laughs> and right now is the period They're, They are living in alignment with their circadian rhythms <laughs> in close proximity to nature. The rites I of spring, say, my friends. You know. Although I did wake up in the tent the other morning and there was a bird <laughs> on top of the tent that was pecking at the roof and tearing a hole in the roof of my tent. Oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> Maybe it was trying to yeah. collect some hair for its nest. I don't know what kind of bird it was, but I darted up and it scurried away and there's like a hole in my tent. But now. you're not in the roof still, right? You've no, moved. No, no, I'm on the ground, yeah. So yeah. now I have to be a little bit more cautious about making sure it's zipped up and there's no snakes or anything like that. Mm. Interesting. No snacks in the tent. The tent. Yeah. Did you did you fix the tent yet? Is it a, is it a, a double? I got a new tent, wide? but here's my thing. I want to get like a glamping tent, like a cool like, right, a cabana. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I need. I need to explore that. A little I want bit a more. tent that rivals the house. 
Like I do a big want flowing white number. Yeah, with that's like what I want. Multi chamber. You're going to come out and build the deck for me. A Mongolian because you're yurt. so available. A Mongolian yurt worthy of Genghis yeah. Khan. That's what I want. I don't want for a you. yurt, but they do have these really cool glamping tents. There's a there's a company in Topanga actually that makes some pretty cool ones. That right. I'm going to go check out. Yeah. So more will be revealed. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for being here, my friend. Hope you guys enjoyed. I don't know what this was about. I guess we, what are we calling this? We're calling this Periodize Your Life. I think that's the title of this podcast. Be the coyote. Be the coyote. You feel good? I feel good. Yeah, man. Cool, man. All right, well, we'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, follow Adam at Adam Skolnick. You can follow me at Rich Roll. Leave us a message with your question and we just might answer it at 424-235-4626. You can check out the show notes and links to everything we discussed today on the episode page at richroll.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all the places. Also, we uh, recently, uh, not that recently, we created a clips channel on YouTube. It kind of went fallow, Mm. bringing that fallow word back. That's sort of the the recurring word of the day, I think, fallow. It went fallow for a period of time because we just didn't have the manpower, the editing manpower to service it. But I'm happy to announce that we've got AJ on board, brand new hire, shout out to AJ, who's come on board to focus on creating clips for the Clips channel. We're gonna be uploading two videos a day on the Clips channel going forward, including clips from the roll on, of course, the questions, all that kind of stuff. So it would mean a lot especially if you dig short chunks from the show or just want to sample a guest before committing. If you would check out our Clips channel and subscribe to it, you can find it on YouTube if you just search Rich Roll Podcast Clips. Uh, Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes to that as well. But I really want to build out this Clips channel. Love it. Um, I'm excited about AJ manning that dashboard and getting some activity there and bringing it out of its fallow state into full bloom. Welcome, AJ. Cool. Um, thanks everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering production, show notes and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin who handle video and editing for the show. And of course, AJ now on the Clips channel. Jessica Miranda for graphics. We don't have anybody shooting portraits today. Uh, we're going photo free today. Mm. I feel naked. Um, Georgia Whaley for copywriting, DK for advertiser relationships and theme music as always by my boys, Tyler Trapper and Harry. Mm. Appreciate all you guys. See you back here in a couple days with another awesome episode. Episode 602 coming in. 602, unbelievable. All right, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Peace. Plantega. Plantega. Namaste.